Hello everyone, welcome to Sega Saturn Shiro, the only podcast where hindsight is always 2020. With me are hosts Dave, Claire, and the very sexy and beautiful Peter. Greetings. Hi. Hey there. As usual, we start with our personal updates. Peter, what have you been up to since our last cast? Uh, to be honest, I've actually given Mist a spin. I've never played Mist until uh, just a few weeks ago, so I've really gotten into it, and that's been fun. Aside from that, I received in the mail my Nights into Dreams Silver, and so to me, that's a very special piece of Sega history. Of course, it plays just the same as the retail version, but it's nice to be able to enjoy it. And I'm really just sort of eyeing that copy of Grandia that's on my shelf and looking to find some time to get back into that. So that's kind of what I've been up to in the last little while. So how exactly is that silver display? Is it just exactly like the Knight's retail copy? Yeah, so the story with the silvers is when a game's gone through all the testing and debugging and it's good to go, the uh, printing plant creates no more than 50 Uh, what ultimately are no different than retail copies, but they're called silvers because there's just no labeling on them whatsoever. So they look like blank discs, but they do have the Sega copy protection and they will play on any retail system. And that's just for one final check to make sure that the game is good to go. And then once Sega would have given the green light, then the CD pressing plant would have gone ahead and mass produced the disc. So it's essentially... You know, the very last chance for somebody to, you know, make any changes or corrections before a game has gone to printing. That's awesome. Well, Peter, you mentioned um, Grandia. Are you going to be playing that with a translation guide? How are you going to be handling that? Well, that'll be, yeah. So definitely a translation guide from the internet is the one way I'm going to be doing it. But I have been taking some Japanese classes, so I'm starting to get some rudimentary Japanese under my belt. And so the idea is to be able to uh, understand it as much as I can just by reading the Japanese. And then where my language skills aren't quite sufficient yet, I'll refer to, you know, online translations. But with a game like Grandy, you just can't not play it. It's one of the greats on Saturn. So one way or another, I will experience it. Yeah, what a cool way to kind of um, brush up on those language skills. That's a really fun way to sort of study and push yourself out of your comfort zone a bit and practice those skills. Absolutely. Awesome. So uh, what have you been up to, Claire? Yeah, well, the past couple weeks, I've actually taken a bit of a break from Saturn. Um, I've been playing a lot of PS1. Um, My best friend and I do a weekly video game session where we kind of just have been going through PS1 games that... Not necessarily that we want to play for any specific reason, but that are laying around. And we just kind of pick up whatever we find, put it in, and see what it's like. So that's been pretty cool. Um, What was on the uh, slab for this week? (laughs) So this week was actually um, Cabela's Hunting for the PS1. Again, not something that I really have any interest in whatsoever, but it was the first game that we found whenever we opened her book of CDs. So we're like, hey... We said we were going to play whatever we find first, so we just kind of put that in. And honestly, it was a lot of fun. I wasn't expecting it to be, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I I love Cabela's. It's where I get all my ammo when I go go up to the range. They have one right by my house, so we just stop by, and it's always a family thing. So I always find that kind of funny, and I'm guessing it's like deer hunting based, right? Yeah, yeah. We sort of made our own challenge where we um, went into the level and 
we didn't take any guns with us. <laughs> so we wanted to see what would happen if we just kind of messed around and um, you just fist fight, fist fight yes. the uh, deers to death. Yes, they they will come at you. They actually can come at you and um, send you out of the level. So it was a pretty funny time. Um, I'm glad we did that. But as far as Saturn, um, I'm on spring break from college right now. So next week, I'm actually um, throwing around the idea of doing a Magic Knight Rare Earth playthrough because that's a game that I've only ever played a little bit of, and I'm gonna have some extra time to kind of dedicate to something. And I'm I'm really thinking that I might want to go with that for next week and really have that experience while I kind of have a little bit less on my plate responsibility wise. Nice. I can't wait to keep us in a loop on that. I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, for sure. So how about you, Pat? What's up with you? So, uh, unfortunately, not a lot of Saturn stuff, but uh, I really wanted to betray the Saturn and Sega in general, and I've been doing PS2 stuff. So uh, this Saturday, actually, uh, the day of the recording, I actually got a really good bundle for 30 bucks. It was like uh, 50 games. Sorry, not 50. 15 games, uh, and two of them being really good ones, being the the Growl Lancer and uh, Growl Lancer and a uh, and Devil May Cry. Like, I think it's one and three. So I got a got a really a lot of really good titles. Uh, Final Fantasy uh, 10, 11, it was 10, 10, 2, and twelve. Cool. Got uh, Ratchet and Clank two, uh, Jack two, uh, the Devil May Cry, like I said before. And in a couple other JRPGs, and I've been—I re- really thought it was a really good deal. I think after everything, it was about 30, 30 bucks. Nice, nice. You got some solid games in there. Yeah, so I'm gonna excited to go play those. Uh, right now, though, I've been trying to play the Dot Hack series. I've really wanted to jump into it, like Claire has for Magic Knight, but just one thing after another stops me. So I'm trying to trying to finally beat it. I want to get. I want to get the rest of the games. I'm on infection right now, but just that money issue. Yeah, that so. that original tetralogy is pretty expensive. So. Yeah, so I'm I'm hoping to be able to get those and or at least them releasing some sort of HD pack. I I love to see how the story ends up because I think it's a interesting premise that, in my opinion, I didn't really think Dot Hack get a lot of love. So I'm hoping that maybe. It'll get more with these new releases of the GU, and maybe we can possibly get the old ones as well, and maybe get a one after quarantine. We'll yeah, um, I've played the um, GU remaster, and I really had a good time with it. And of course, they added a fourth episode for that that um, was just made this year. So it'd be pretty cool um, if we'll see if the reception for that was strong enough to warrant a remaster of the original tetralogy. Uh, I hope so. I don't want to pay hundreds of dollars for these games. I just want to play some really good games. Yeah, yeah, I don't blame you there. All right, so um, Dave, did you want to go into what your update is? Yeah, well, um, aside from poring over this white paper document, which has been very uh, humorous and interesting, um, I've also been playing a lot of Power Slave, as I said last time, and I actually got to a point where I'm kind of stuck, and I haven't given up yet, and... Uh, resorted to a guide um, but it is kind of one of those things where you know you, you you do a lot of backtracking and try to uh, find upgrades you know that can help you access new areas and stuff like that so I kind of hit a wall with that so 
I started getting into playing some uh, some Drift King Shutoku Battle 97, uh, which is kind of like Genki's predecessor to the Tokyo Extreme Racer series on the Dreamcast. It's a lot of fun. I've, I've actually been having a lot of fun with it. The, the, the main difficulty is, um, you know, the, like Peter with Grandia, you know, a lot of the upgrades to the engine, the intake, all that stuff, the exhaust, all of it is in Japanese and and, and some of it is, is a little harder to understand than others. So I'm, I've been having to revert back to a lot of my Japanese studies as well, just to be able to kind of get through that. I, do, I could just go on game facts, I know, but like a lot of the times I like to just kind of puzzle it out and figure out what I'm doing. And it has been fun, you know, and, and the control is actually not bad. I, I haven't played in a really long time, but I would recommend it now. I would recommend it uh, because it's cheap enough. I would recommend people check it out. I gotcha, I gotcha. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks for the update, everybody. So now let's move on to our interview section. Uh, Claire and Peter are going to have a really candid one-on-one chat with Chaz about his experience playing Panzer Dragoon and his actual 100% playthrough. And again, congratulations to Chaz for doing that. Yeah, so um, Chaz just finished his Shiro Live Let's Play of Panzer Dragoon Saga, um, a 100% completion run, last Sunday. So um, we really just want to sit down and talk with him about his experience with that. So, Chaz, for some people who might not have watched your stream and might not be real familiar with Panzer Dragoon Saga, is there any advice that you would give somebody looking to complete a 100% run, things to watch out for, or tips and tricks? Well, the first thing I could recommend is, when it's your first time playing it, uh, don't worry about the 100% run on your first playthrough. Because the first thing you want to understand for yourself is, is this a game that I would enjoy or not? Because if you would enjoy, if you do enjoy it, you're you're going to be more likely to remember uh, smaller details to help you complete that 100% run. So, and if you feel, uh, and if you love the game enough and want to play through it a second time, because it's short enough as it is, which helps the replay value. If you want to go for that 100%, probably the trickiest element you have to work with is the enemy data collection. Because not only are there rare enemies in the game that you can miss, but there's a small chance that you could miss common enemies. And you also have to collect the excellent rank on every single one of those enemies as well. And some of those enemies are only available in a small time window. So if you miss them, they are gone forever. That's the, that's the hardest part as far as the 100% goes, the enemy data collection. The map, on the other hand, is relatively simple. As you, if you, well, whether you watch the run or not, for those who didn't see it, if you watch it later, you'll see that I opened the map up a lot, going from having the map open to having it closed, where gray is unexplored and blue is explored. And that's pretty self explanatory because the maps are covered on a grid by grid basis. But there are some uh, little nuances where some little slithers or pieces of the map don't get covered in blue and still stay and stay gray. 
but the game will still factor a 100% uh, legitimate score that you did cover the whole map. I don't know why that happens, why some little itty-bitty pieces of the map stay gray, even though the game acknowledges that you did explore that area. And the, the target destruction is also something that uh, can be tricky in certain areas, but for the most part, that's pretty straightforward. I would say overall, just uh, on your first playthrough, just discover the game for yourself. Don't look up walkthroughs. Just let the experience happen. And if you love the game enough, you'll want to get a 100 uh, on your second run. If, if you love the game enough. That's pretty much all I can say about that. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there. Um, you can really only experience the story of Panzer Dragoon Saga for the first time once. So to be distracted, you know, trying to go for that 100% completion, which can be a little bit tedious, um, I, I definitely agree with you when you suggest to do your first run at leisure. Yeah, absolutely. And if you love the game enough, for in my personal experience, when I love a game enough that I want to keep replaying it, I will remember those, ex- those extra areas. Because if I didn't enjoy the game, I'm not going to remember all that stuff. I'm only going to know the basics. It's not going to stick with me. But that game did stick with me, which is what made it easier for me to get the 100. Right, right. So, Peter, did you have any questions for Chaz? Absolutely. So, uh, first of all, congratulations again, Chaz. That was an awesome playthrough. (laughs) Thank you. Something that we didn't actually notice directly in your playthrough videos is what controller did you use to play Panzer Dragoon Saga? Was it the original Western one? Was it the smaller Japanese-style controllers? Or was it even the, the 3D control pad? And, you know, do you have a preference and why? It, is, it was the what you consider the Japanese style. It was a Model 2 U.S. controller. Okay, it's the Model 2, otherwise known as the, the Japanese style. I refuse to use the U.S. Model 1. Have you had any experience with the 3D control pad with this game? Not with that game, no. I did get a copy of Nights into Dreams before owning a 3D control pad because with a a directional pad, Nights doesn't make sense. Once I got the 3D pad, that game made complete sense. But I never bothered with the 3D pad for Saga in and of itself. I associate that controller with Nights, and I think think a lot of us do. Fair enough. Fair enough, fair enough. So, um... I watched quite a bit of your playthrough, and I noticed that um, in one streaming day, you tackled two of the toughest areas as far as completion, the Imperial Air Force Post and the Underground Ruins of Uru. On both of those places, it's pretty easy to miss break targets. So what was your strategy going into that for maintaining completion? (laughs) Oh man, the Air Force Post. (laughs) That is the one area, and I think a lot of us would agree, that can really, pun intended, break your run if you're trying to get 100%, because there are a lot of targets to break in the Air Force post. So I'm going to start with that. With the break targets, there are the searchlights, the the searchlight stands, the, the, the platforms with the ships on them that also have item boxes. There's just a lot to target your laser with in the Air Force post. So much to target at and so much to miss. What I like to start with is to destroy the searchlights because there are usually two of them on a base or on a single post. And when you destroy those two searchlights, the post becomes a target. When you target that and destroy it, the lid of that post will pop off and fly in the air. 
that also becomes a target that you can shoot within a small time window before it crashes and splashes into the ocean, in which that target is gone forever. So you really have to keep your eye peeled when when targeting the searchlights and and uh, and the posts themselves. And even sometimes after you destroy that lid that blew off, the post where the searchlights were becomes a target again. So keeping your right eye peeled on the radar where you can see pink dots, your breakable targets, that also really helps because there is just so much to destroy in the Air Force post that's easy to miss. The other tricky part is the platforms with the stationary ships on them. Those platforms have three item boxes on them, and if you destroy the platform before collecting those three item boxes, that's it. You just lost your 100 run. You either reload a game or or go without. So for those who didn't watch the video, and if you have already, you'll understand that to guarantee not to miss those targets, to just drag your cursor over those ship platforms until you have four targets locked on at once. The platform itself and the three item boxes. Have the four targeted, then press your C button. You'll collect all four of them at once without fail. That's the first thing as far as the break targets. Did you want to want me to cover the enemy data collection there, or is that sufficient? Yeah, I think we'll move on to that um, with Peter's next question. All right. All right, Chaz. So in your 100% uh, completion, which was the hardest enemy for you to find? And do you find that in your playthroughs that it's typically the same enemy over and over as you play the game multiple times? Or do you find that you're typically looking for a different enemy each time with uh, a different playthrough? It's funny you ask that because now that I know um, for sure from playing it so many times where the enemies are located, finding them isn't actually so difficult as long as you know the spot where they're at. If you remember the first two videos where I was looking for the sand mites in the Oasis Desert, those are located in the in all the corner corner spots of the last desert map screen. Once you know where they are, all you have to do is just fly in a circle and wait for them to pop up, which can be tedious at times, which open for conversation in the, in the video run. But once you know where they are, you just have to hover around and, and camp or or farm, if you will. It can be tedious and, and annoying, but if you know where they are, you're guaranteed to find them. Like the Golia trackers or the Golia hunters in the Forest of Zoa is another example. And the Absorberak, the other rare enemy in Uru. The ones that I had the most trouble finding, or on a regular playthrough, would be the battlecruiser and the warship, again, in the Air Force post. Because the enemy encounter rate is high, and when you have a telepathy shard in your inventory, which helps change your radar's color to let you know if enemies are nearby or not, that radar is constantly changing colors, from blue to yellow to red. And yellow, or caution mode as I call it, is usually a good indicator that a rare enemy is within the area. Because you'll notice in the playthrough, when I was looking for sand mites, my radar was yellow. As was also my radar was yellow when I was looking for the Golia enemies in the forest of Zoa. So that was the two tough ones, finding the cruiser and the warship. But fortunately in that run, if you, if you saw it, I got very lucky finding both enemies with little effort. Just, just really good RNG on my behalf. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, the warships got me on my last playthrough. I spent three hours flapping around the Air Force base looking for warships. And it's it's almost maddening in that area because it's one of the highest encounter rate areas in the game where you have enemies coming at you almost every two flaps of your dragon's wings. So, yeah, the warships have gotten me too. That's that's what the escape spell's for. <laughs> <You'll>, you, <laughs> You saw me using it in the video, and I'm like, nope, I'm all set with this fight. I've done it too many times. Yes, yes. Well, speaking of those battles that kind of drive us nuts, um, was there any particular battle or enemy um, in your playthrough or in the playthroughs that you've done even over the years that you've had to do more than once in order to achieve the excellent ranking for it? The first time I got the 100%, which was on my own personally, not on the live run, Probably the one enemy, if I remember correctly, that I was having trouble with was the sub-boss behemoth, which, again, is in the dreaded Air Force post. Because I had kept forgetting that to weaken it, you shoot the engine in the back, which will stun it temporarily, and then swing over to its left side to then inflict damage using your gun or your, or your laser. Because I kept forgetting that, I kept getting a lousy great fight or a good fight and just kept messing it up. So once I read up on how to do it efficiently, it's now foolproof. The other one I had trouble with, which was my own fault, was the detonator enemy, again, in the Air Force post, because I made a silly mistake of swinging to the left or right when I shouldn't have, and I took a hit that I should not have, which likely cost me the excellent rank. So I just did a quick reset to... to, to, reset, to refight the enemy again and just move on because I knew from there on that I didn't have the excellent rank. That is awesome. Okay, I've got one last question for you, Chaz. Tell us about how you felt at the very end of the game when you were waiting for the credits to finish rolling to see what your final result was on this playthrough. For the for, for that for the for my waiting for my results, I actually had to stand up and move away from the camera just to let the blood flow through my body. And in fact, meanwhile, I think I had gone to the bathroom or had gone to feed the cats while the uh, while the video was, while the cutscenes were playing back, just to redirect my uh, my mindset away from what the result was going to be, so I would calm myself down a little bit. But in the last uh, shot, when Azel is is heading off in the desert on the Coolia. Uh, that's where uh, that, of course, was the most tense for me because I'm taking in, taking in a few couple breaths, saying to myself, "Okay, did I get it? Did I get it? Did I get it?" And then when I see the screen and the first thing I read is, "You are worthy to live among the gods," I knew I had it. That was it. That was the result. I jumped up off my seat. You know, I screamed with joy. You, you they can all hear it on the run now. So I was, yes, I was absolutely ecstatic, super happy to have gotten the run, delivered what I promised, and then some. Yeah, we are so excited for you, Chaz. I mean, it's a tough thing, and you can never be sure. I know on my last 100% run, I ended up with a 99.6 in break targets. Just that somewhere I missed one, and it kept me from the perfect game. And I can't tell you how my stomach dropped whenever I saw that screen. So to see you get that 100%, I mean, I was so relieved for you and just so, you know, ecstatic that you were able to get that 100% completion. Did I tell you about the first time that I got the 100, not live, but when I got the last screen and didn't have the 100%, it was because I missed uh, an item box in the valley. 
I went back to the valley, opened it, beat the game again. There it was. Oh, that that is such a good thing. That's really lucky that you were able to go back and identify where you'd missed one. Right. Yeah, no kidding. Let alone an item box that I could that I could return to. Right, because some of them, you know, you have those areas that close down after you move on, and there's no going back, like the no. Imperial Air Force Base. Yeah. So. Oh, and and I think we mentioned you mentioned the underground uh, underground Uru ruins. Oh my oh, yes. god. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love the floater, Chaz? Best I, vehicle ever. I hate that floater. It's better once you get the level like four. A bone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. It does look like a like a like a bone or a femur or something. And once you have the level four speed, it's more tolerable. But oh man, <laughs> I think even I think even Yukio Futatsuki said that that area could use improvement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that interview. Um, I, I've made many a loop around the underground ruins of Iru. It's like the doldrums. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, when I went back to it the second time, just for completion, uh, you remember if you had watched that part of the video, I had gotten lost. And said to myself, oh, "Ass, I'm wasting time here. Come on, find the exit, please." <laughs> and the elevators too, you know those elevator shafts. Hey, Chaz, Chaz, I have. Can I ask him a question? Are you guys? Yeah, absolutely. Shoot, go ahead. You know, okay. So, well, first of all, I'm in awe of your prowess at this game, and uh, you know, being as busy as I am, I wasn't really able to too many of those streams. I mean, I was able to catch part of each one, but. Uh, wasn't able to hang in there with you. And I just was, I noticed you had some diehards that like pretty much stuck with you the whole time. You know, I was just wondering, you know, it, what kind of, how, what was the overall experience for you, you know, doing this for the first time and doing it live? Doing it live was uh, at, at first really exciting. Cause I was seeing the, I, I was seeing the, uh, the eye count like five or 10, like, Oh my God, people are watching this. But what really made it special, I'm, I got to give another shout out to him, was how un, how unmovingly loyal Chase Red was to watching that video with me. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as it popped up, he was there. He, his eyes were glued to it like I was glued to it with the controller. Like he was he was there for me. Even if it wasn't a thousand people, this one guy was a, was a fan. This one guy was devoted to me. Mm-hmm. absolutely devoted outside of the Shiro group and I said mm-hmm. well if this one guy is going to be so, is going to be so thrilled and a fan for life that I'm doing this then I'm there for him and mm-hmm. he was there for me cool that is cool. you were so elated at that that 100% reveal you know yeah absolutely just, that was exciting to watch it was just exciting to to listen if, to you and be so excited and lost for words you know and even he was even giving me some pointers on um, some things that I, uh, a couple things that I was about to miss. Like he helped me find one of the Goya enemies in the forest because by some stupid mistake, they swapped the names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the tracker and the hunter, they swapped the names in the game, which is why I kept getting confused. A lazy, lazy coding mistake or something? Uh, who knows? It just the, just a simple name swap. But Chase was right there and said, oh, that enemy is, that's that's what the problem is. They, they swap the names and the enemy you want is over at such and such. And I'm like, oh, that's right. I remember now. God, I feel stupid. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Chaz, um, congratulations again on your um, incredible effort and success with this 100% run. So I have to ask you, um, what games do you have lined up for us next for streams? 
there's a lot there's a lot that i want to do uh, the only the only uh, the only uh snag in the plan is sticking with the theme what we're going with whatnot because taramaru is going to be tomorrow uh sunday at th- tomorrow at 3 p.m eastern time because i know we're going on the uh, i know we have the uh, rare reproduction uh topic that we're on right now so that's going to be tomorrow and i don't know if anybody can hear that if anybody's going to hear this later but i'll repeat it again uh guardian heroes is another one that i want to run and what's going to be cool about running guardian heroes is you've all played it haven't you sure and you remember at the you remember at the end of uh at the end of a level you get a choice on where to go or what to do next Mm -hmm. yeah you kind of get to branching paths right you get branching paths well what's going to be fun about this is anyone and everyone who's watching i'm not going to choose what's going to happen next they are so you do like a poll or something it's going to be a, i'm going to do like a live poll thing whoever's watching people can leave comments on where i should go or what i should do next and the most popular one that's the one i'm going to pick because with this procedure my opinion is this will get them more involved with the gameplay itself because as far as i'm concerned when i'm playing these games people who are watching are not just watching they are a part of it they are a part of the experience Mm -hmm. and letting them and letting them decide where i go next is going to bring them much closer cool yeah that that sounds super um interactive and awesome Um, i think that's a great approach and i know i sure enjoyed your streams of pds and i am really looking forward to what you have to bring us in the future and i'll make another video announcement too in case uh in case people miss in case people miss this okay well yeah keep putting the word out there all right well thanks so much for being here with us tonight Chaz, and um sharing your feelings on your pds run with us yeah you're welcome thanks again for having me thank you for coming congratulations Congrats. Welcome to Victory Lane. You made it. So now let's move on to our main topic, the Sega Saturn white paper, the very interesting yet confusing documentation by Sega and the beginning of the Sega marketing for the Saturn. Now, I was a bit confused on the origin, what exactly this was, like where this came from, what was the purpose, and uh, maybe you can sort of enlighten us a little bit more, Dave, about what exactly this is. Sure thing. So um, this is kind of a very strange document, to be honest with you. It is. Um, it comes from a time where Sega was very, very confident and uh, had a lot of hubris. You know, coming right off of the success that they had with the Mega Drive in in America, they gained fifty one percent of the market share, and then they dropped the Saturn in Japan ninety four, and uh, that was a huge success with Virtua Fighter and. So they were very confident, um, a, a very different Sega than we know today. And um, they were kind of getting ahead of themselves. They decided to basically create um, hype 
you know, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, they decided to hype up the the American release by releasing this incredibly long document, just bragging about their accomplishments and bragging about how great the Saturn would be. Um, part of it reads very technically, so I think you know that it may have been intended for stockholders. Um, it may have been intended for the press and like the industry in general, but it's just a very, very interesting piece of, of Saturn or Sega history, you know, and it's incredibly self-deprecating, especially when you consider hindsight that a lot of the claims that they would make in this document uh, didn't quite end up coming true. Did you, you guys have all read it, right? Um, yeah, it's definitely was confusing. Uh, I, <laughs> so did they just get this from a, like some sort of manufacturer Did they get was this just like a copy that somebody stole and put away so in an archive? Released, no, yeah. So, so this document was released and talked about in Next Generation magazine. It was also made available on Sega's own website. The Sega online archive that I'm going to be putting up, the one of the 1996, it's, it's on there. When you click on the Saturn hardware, there's a link to go to the white paper. Um, they published this white paper in a few different places and it was actually talked about back in the day so why they did this i mean some some companies put out white paper documents just to kind of like give usually i, I guess to give their stockholders kind of an idea of where they're going with the company so i'm thinking that maybe they did this to create confidence among the i guess industry professionals and then also like their stockholders but uh yeah, it's just, it's a really strange document, and it, and it's strange that it even exists at all. Definitely. Uh, did you want to go through it a little bit? And Yeah, we're going to take you guys on a little trip with us. We're going to go through this document, we're going to read it, and we're going to kind of give our thoughts on it. It's going to be very interesting, and, uh, and some of these things are just going to kind of blow you guys away. So um, without further ado, let's get right into it, and we're going to kick it off with the first point, which is technology that defines the next generation. Here we go. There has been no shortage of hype about the next generation in video game systems. Almost a dozen manufacturers have hopped on the next generation bandwagon and hope to capture the consumer's attention and a slice of his or her home entertainment budget. Each vendor promises game systems that are faster and more capable than today's 16-bit devices with more dramatic special effects and greater realism and interactivity. Yes, the next generation. I find that incredibly ironic because Sega really contributed just in the previous year or two to putting out a whole bunch of systems, nearly half a dozen of their own, and you know, saturating that market. So for them to be calling out that, you know, almost a dozen manufacturers have machines is is quite ironic. Right, that are just going to come along and add to the glut that Sega has already, you know, had a hand in. Yeah, I, then, I think it really just speaks volumes of that era of the 90s where you had stuff like the Jaguar, the CDI, the 3DO, the Sega Saturn, the PlayStation, the C and it just goes on and on. And it's, I mean, there's probably a ton of other systems that maybe were in Panasonic, the Panasonic, Gold Star, Commodore, yeah, Apple, I mean, Bandai, Casio, Fujitsu... Yeah, mm -hmm. it's just that whole '90s boom and movement that sort of that that defined that internet age. Sort of, you know, the the internet boom that happened. 
Mm -hmm. And they talk about, you know, providing game systems that are faster and more capable than 16-bit video game devices. But this dramatic realism and interactivity doesn't amount to much more than, like, point-and-click FMV cutscenes, you know? Which I think is ironic. But where does the hype leave off and reality begin? What is it really going to take to dazzle consumers and make them eager for more? Sega will leave no room for debate by providing the ultimate gaming experience with the Sega Saturn. Once consumers compare the next generation game systems, Sega Saturn will prove the hands-down choice. <laughs> of course. So, you know, was there room for debate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of interesting that Sega's saying this here because... I think that they themselves were debating their capabilities at this time. Um, Everything surrounding the U.S. launch was very reactive to the competitors that were all kind of throwing their hats in the ring during this generation. And it seems like they themselves weren't even convinced that the Saturn would be the hands-down choice. They were Mm -hmm. as much trying to convince consumers as they were really kind of giving themselves a pep talk. It's like that's what this whole document is like. You know, it's like a big pat on the back pep talk you know it's like something you get at like your employer i know right and i mean if there was any debate it was usually about n64 and playstation i don't even think saturn was a part of the debate like half the time on the schoolyards i mean that's 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 all i knew existed ironic same here same here i mean what about you peter what was it what was it like for you in that era was there any room for debate up in the great north or did everybody just play sega and nintendo you know, it was all Sony and Nintendo, 100%. I mean, there was the odd Saturn fan, but boy, you know, folks who played 32-bit Sega were really laughed at. It was it was all PlayStation, it was all Nintendo 64. So, you know, what Sega had hoped for here completely didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. Their crystal ball was broken. <laughs> I think they just relied too much on that that marketing boom they had from the Genesis. Oh, yeah, we're so powerful. We got all this cool stuff coming along, and... As we go through the document, I think it will it'll start to unravel that. And I mean, they blew the doors off with the Saturn in Japan. You know, they sell like a million units, so they're thinking that they're like gods. You know. Well, well, let's continue on and see what else they proved incorrect. Way beyond mere technology, there's endless talk about next generation technology, state of the art microprocessors, polygon counts, texture mapping, etc. But most consumers aren't concerned about the technical marvels that lie under the hood. Instead, their focus is on the experience of playing the games. Are the games fun? Close to the edge? Full of surprises? Realistic enough to make you forget that it's a creative illusion? To the person at the controls, the underlying technology is irrelevant unless it makes possible an exhilarating and one-of-a-kind gameplay experience. That's very interesting. Do you think maybe they sort of didn't listen to their own advice in a way where a lot of the stuff was sort of pushing the technology and some of that substance wasn't there in some cases, especially with the 3D hop-on. Sure. I mean, I think that the fact that they're trying to sweep the technology under the rug and say it's it's irrelevant is a convenient statement considering that their underlying technology was probably their greatest problem, you know, from the get-go. Yeah, and it, it makes me wonder, do you think that Sega's technology was... Because for, for what I understand, I think it's the only system of that era that had those dual microprocessors and multi-threading capabilities. So do you think yeah, maybe I mean, their most powerful technology was their biggest downfall? 
I mean, sure. I mean, they they did this thing where they brought the arcade home, but they literally tried to be like, well, we got dual processors in the arcade. Let's do that at home, you know? But I mean, it doesn't really translate well. What do you, I mean, did you guys have any thoughts on this part? You guys want me to keep rolling? I'm Claire. just going to chime in real quick and say that, you know, they say to the person at the controls, the underlying technology is irrelevant. It, you know, it really felt at that time that exactly figured out who was at the controls of their company. You know, was it their American arm? Was it their Japanese arm? And who was calling the shots and what was going on? Because I think internally they were quite confused themselves. Exactly. This is exactly the philosophy behind the design of the Sega Saturn, which was introduced in Japan in November 1994 and is on a steep curve to sell more than 2 million units in its first year. Wow. Sega has designed the Sega Saturn from the silicon up. <laughs> to transport consumers into an entirely new realm of interactive entertainment. Yeah. The Sega Saturn makes it possible for software to immerse players in stunningly realistic worlds of 3D modeled graphics, dynamic perspective with ever-changing points of view, true 3D audio, and gameplay speed that far surpasses the most powerful multimedia PC. Woo! All right, so... Those are some hot claims. Dave, I think that one period right there was full of so much that we need to split that into two. (laughs) Okay, well, let's start with Sega has designed the Saturn from the silicon up. You mean like crammed a bunch of chips in a box and provided little to no usable documentation for developers? (laughs) And slapped slapped two processors in there and be like, oh, we're good to go. You guys, Claire, Peter. Yeah, well, before we even even get to that um, part of this excerpt, the first sentence where they're kind of touting the success of the Saturn in Japan, um, that's definitely, you know, something to be quite proud of, but nor was Sega coming off of this failure of the 32X in Japan. The environment was totally different. So um, exactly. to, to really assume that the reception in the United States would be the same as in Japan was definitely a misassumption on their part. Or they're trying to pretend that it's not happening, you know? Or that. Kind of like, you know, let's just not mention that that redheaded stepchild in the in the corner <laughs> over there. So do we know if they actually hit that two million mark in Japan? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh sweet. Oh well I guess they, they let's chalk up one little tally on there for prediction. And Virtua Fighter was not a pack in. Virtua Fighter was not a pack in and it sold like one for one. Wow. So. Well I mean that that makes sense. Virtua Fighter's like crack over there for that region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I almost wonder, like, they should have probably thrown even more chips into that box. Maybe that would have made a, a difference. Right. <laughs> would have created stunningly realistic worlds of 3D model graphics. So there's a question I was curious to ask you guys is, when I started playing it, I never really viewed it as a, like, even back then, I never viewed the graphics as real-to-life 3D or anything even close to that. I always saw it as video games. So, but to you guys back then, did you guys think, wow, holy crap, this is like, almost real life like considering we all had the model too to compare it to i don't think any of us were like away Uh, well just in general for the graphics of the time it's more of a generalized graphics for each one no i mean with any console during the fifth generation i i don't really think that my focus was on on thinking about how realistic things looked um like you said pat to me they were really just video games um Mm -hmm. some looked better than others but I wasn't, you know, sitting there thinking, oh, this is so immersive. 
I just think it's funny they say gameplay speed that far surpasses most powerful multimedia PC, and we got about 20 frames per second on Daytona at launch, you know? Yeah, I was actually going to bring that up later on, because I think they mentioned something about that. So sure. I, that'll, that'll be funny, but... Uh, well, yeah. rolling right along. Yeah, let's go. Rolling start, baby. Woo! More than any other video game maker, Sega had its finger on the pulse of the consumer and is able to transform raw technology into major fun for millions of people. No one else combines a 40-year arcade history with a wildly successful in-house publishing effort. Add this to Sega's solid relationships with third-party developers, who will add depth and dimension to Sega's own game library for Sega Saturn. All told, the Sega Saturn game development universe involves hundreds of creative and innovative programmers intent upon taking Sega Saturn and its players to the limit of immersive experiences. Well, yes, those Sega. solid relationships with those third-party developers wouldn't be very solid for long after the time of this document's writing. Um, they yeah. went on to slight so, so slight. many studios. and Oh, yeah. I think, like, I think I think that's so bad that didn't EA like not even make games for the Dreamcast? Yes. Mm. That's bad. Well, and then even the bit about having, you know, their 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 finger on the pulse, on the pulse. of the consumer. I mean, you know, by the end of the generation it was clear it was the middle finger that they had. <laughs> what, you didn't like sports games and more generic 3D model things? I mean, you don't want those RPGs or anything, right? Or those shmups or... No, those you don't want that. It's not going to sell well. Yeah, that was the same consumer's pulse that brought us the Sega CD, 32X, Pico, Hey, don't talk, don't talk bad Nomad. about the Pico, dude. The Pico is... <laughs> the legit. Pico rocks, right? Dude, the Pico is my first Sega console. That is a fact. Is it really? Yeah. You were like a little pat playing with the Pico? Yeah, I was. I played Richard Scarry's Little Adventure book. Oh, I yes. That it. was my favorite on the Pico. Dude, <laughs> I love you, Claire. You are the best. See? See, Claire's got her pulse on the consumer, mm-hmm. and it's a good pulse. But I have uh, my pulse on the Pico. Exactly. Yeah, Claire's right, though. All those, all those solid third-party developer relationships would be dragged through the mud by the end of this hardware Wow, what and, a uh, journey. They would all jump ship for Sony upon seeing how difficult it was to develop for. The right technology in the right hands. Up until now, advances in video game technology have been incremental. Okay. <laughs> True. CD players and <laughs> other... Not <laughs> <laughs> no way. Okay, I gotta start over. Okay, Up until now, advances in video game technology have been incremental. True, CD players and other enhancements in graphics, speed, and player control have given gamers more bang for their buck with 16-bit games. But today's technology in the right designer's hands makes it possible to make a quantum leap into the future. The software on the Sega Saturn will take players right inside the game experience with compelling visual, audio, and kinesthetic effects. Okay, can, can can okay, so big companies, can we stop with this cliche we'll take players right inside of the game? Like I, know, I mean, right? I mean seriously, this is like like I mean they were saying this on the NES. Do people actually like get sucked in sometimes? It's in I the mean, game. <laughs> I mean, there's like getting inside of the game like being like immersed but like sort of what like virtual reality? Yeah, I think that's what they're trying to lead to or trying to say. But what kind of incremental are they talking about? You mean like sixteen bit to thirty two bit? 
I think I think they mean like you know the the basic uh, Moore's law, where the silicon's double every year or so. Well, it, you know, it, it's just such a funny heading. The right technology in the right hands. Uh, you know, it's it's just a shame that all they could find were programmers with left hands because it, they clearly just couldn't bring out any of this stuff that they were promising. You know, in this part of the the document. I guess Yuji Naka would be the right hands. <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah. and in the hands of Team Andromeda. Oh sure. You know. I just think that it's that all the good documentation, all the things with all the Japanese developers, while mm. America really didn't really get much to work with, which is re- really re- the reason why the system also failed because we didn't, we had all those American developers mm-hmm. trying to do this multi thing with these process multi threading and these multi processor designs and it just didn't work out with no documentation like i mean they had they had chip documentation they had hardware documentation but they didn't actually have graphics libraries i gotta move on essentially sega saturn uses the same technology found in a commercial arcade system not lying i guess consider the stv um it's the only home system to use state-of-the-art massive parallel processing okay again they're sweeping the 32x under the rug here um which provides immersive first person gameplay parallel processing found in supercomputers divides computing tasks into pieces which are then assigned to powerful specialized processors in contrast competing game systems assign all computing tasks to a single central processor like the processing schemes found in small personal computers Sega Saturn's parallel or ensemble processing broadens the programming capabilities for the system, enabling software developers and ultimately gamers themselves to go where they've never dreamed to go with video games before. Think of the limited musical range of a one-man band, all of the competing single processor systems, versus the symphonic possibilities of a fully scored orchestra. There's no comparison. Okay, so... Massive parallel processing. I would like to just iterate that with John. Let's just render off the CPU Carmack and his brilliance and sort of that generalized thinking of it and not really taking advantage of this hardware. Like just that mentality is the reason why the system failed. I mean, it existed and it was powerful and in the right hands it could do damage, but nobody really knew how to do it really much outside of Japan. I mean, do you guys feel any American developer really took advantage of this to its maximum capacity oh goodness no like a lot of saturn games especially the early ones you know programmers were making do with just using as few uh of the chipset as they could so they were intentionally omitting working with the parallel processing so you know games like alien trilogy which run okay on the saturn certainly don't take advantage of parallel processing you know they're trying to get away with using just one cpu and trying to get everything done that way yeah um this music analogy that they use later on saying that um it's much better to listen to a fully scored orchestra than a one-man band that's true if the orchestra is playing together in tune um in the case of the saturn the components for this parallel processing just were not you know working together so i think in this case i'd rather listen to a one-man band that had its act together exactly exactly imagine that orchestra having to play musical chairs to fight for a place to sit right because they're all fighting over the same work ram i sort of made an analogy of it to one guy working with the orchestra and two different composers both speaking different <laughs> languages of the composer 
in which the composer doesn't understand what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially how I feel about it. You know, to answer your question, Pat, I think um, Lobotomy Soft was probably the only U.S. developer that I know of off the top of my head that actually used the dual processors and, and used them to good effect. Um, they really ended up having to use them on like Quake and, and Duke Nukem to get that kind of speed out of it. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's a good point. All right, moving along. Because the technology is similar to that of Sega's Titan arcade system, Sega Saturn also paves the way for hot game titles to migrate from Sega's interactive theme parks to its commercial arcade systems down to the home-based Sega Saturn system. Can't argue and there. straight into the discount bins. <laughs> right. Okay, wait, okay, hold that thought. The indisputable logic of the Sega Saturn's design, indisputable logic, you guys, of the Sega Saturn's design, Sega views video games as a set of logical components, and in the Sega Saturn assigns each component its own computer chip or subsystem. A total of eight, eight microprocessors in the Sega Saturn, three of which are powerful 32-bit RISC chips work together as a sophisticated suite of coprocessors to create a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. The main components of the Sega Saturn architecture include... Before I get into this, does anybody want to say anything about that indisputable logic? This sounds more like a mess than a good worked-out design processor. You know, if they took the logic that Atari did with the Jaguar and just added up all the bits, like, you know, you could argue that... Was like the first 500-bit system out there, you know? So, <laughs> I know, right? It's a lot of bits. Like I was, I was trying to read this, and I just got, kept getting confused. Like, what the hell is going on in this thing? Right. So they designed each one of the okay. So each one of the components, the logical components, has its own computer chip or subsystem. Some of these chips even have their own coprocessors to drive them. It's so oh, this thing is so over-engineered. Here we go. The Saturn architecture includes. Two SH2 Hitachi 32-bit RISC processors, which provide the main processing engine for the Sega Saturn and work in concert with the system's more specialized chips. Having dual processors means double the potential, and I, that word I have to en- emphasize, potential processing power, uh, potential we would often never see. SH2 was specifically designed for the Sega Saturn by Hitachi. Again, let's ignore the 32X. Um, Two sophisticated graphics processors derived from Sega's advanced arcade systems, VDP-1 and VDP-2, Video Digital Processor. That's what that stands for. Each of which handles separate graphics tasks. VDP-1, the advanced geometry engine, generates all of the character and gameplay images via polygons and sprites graphical objects, while VDP-2 handles the background in the scroll-playing processor, creates the graphics behind the gameplay. By applying special effects to polygons and sprites, VDP-1 gives characters and other game elements three-dimensional realism. VDP-2, meanwhile, can display as many as five background planes, as well as rotate two play fields, giving dynamic depth and perspective to gameplay. Let's stop right there and talk. So, unfortunately, none of those can do any transparencies. Now, that's not true. I mean, they they don't they didn't have native software support for it. But that's what I meant, like native, like without trickery. Exactly. Just native transparencies. 
I was gonna just really quickly, you know, the SH2 chips, it's, you know, they should have almost renamed them the SHIT chips. I think that would have been a bit oh more. Peter, clear. you're priceless. That is great. So they really ignore, I mean, they throw 32x under the bus here by not even mentioning that those chips were in the 32x as well um but also and you're absolutely right about that um the the fact that this thing was so over engineered i i feel like i have to stop and and say this is that when sega caught wind of what sony was doing on paper and they saw what this thing was going to be capable of the playstation they obviously they had to go back to the drawing board hideki sato was incredibly angry at his staff and you know, there was a, a shouting meeting and, and um, you know, th- we have to become better, you know. So they literally stopped the presses and they spent the next year over-engineering this beast, throwing in an extra VDP, throwing in some extra coprocessors so that they could get this thing where they needed it to be. But in that time, they basically forfeited their ability to provide that whole year they were supposed to spend developing a software graphics library, which they didn't do. So... When they put the Saturn out, they basically just had to slap a huge, thick manual on these developers' desks and say, here you go, learn the hardware, you know, instead of here you go, learn the software development library, you know. And I, and I so, think I think one of the biggest issues with that is that they, sh- they should have known from the get-go that they needed to design a 32-bit 3D machine. I mean, their arcade machines can already do these things, you know, the STV and all those. Mm-hmm. They had Virtual Fighter. I mean, they even did it on the 32X poorly, I might add, but done nonetheless. And, I mean, I'm just curious why they just they think, oh, just who needs 3D on a home platform? I mean, they it's common sense, it. right? They, they, had their, they had their fingers on the consumer's pulse, though, you know? I mean, it's funny. They created the biggest hit arcade game in Virtual Fighter and then Virtual Racing to an extent. And yet they couldn't see that people were clamoring for that and that that's what they wanted. I think they just want to do more or less the same and maybe try it and maybe they didn't underestimate, like maybe they underestimated like, oh, the money's not there for a consoleized 3D machine yet. And then mm-hmm. PlayStation did and it's like, oh crap, we got to... <laughs> oh crap, maybe it is. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. That's what my thinking is now that I, I, I think about it, but a lot of it is hindsight. I mean, we'd have to be there in the moment of this development to really get a great perspective on it hindsight is 2020 well you know this hardware just (laughs) read true just reading about this sounds impressive it does i mean you know all the scroll plane processor and the the graphics the the rotating two play fields and yada yada um so let's move on and, and read about how it handles that so by dividing up the graphics tasks in this way The visuals are smooth, fast, and able to move with real-time speed and fluidity so that characters have lifelike motion. Working in tandem, the two video processors create a single visual experience that can't be mimicked by a single graphics chip. Okay. Wrong. (laughs) So they say say we're going to get some real-time speed and fluidity, and then Mm. they give us Daytona USA at 20 games. Yeah. Well, the the thing you have to think about is... A lot of people don't understand this, but a processor is only as good as the person that programs for it. Mm-hmm. Essentially, when people are saying they have the two processors, they're good at making multitasking and doing these things. Mm-hmm. Basically, what they're saying is that they're throwing off jobs to two different processors to do in parallel, mm-hmm. which is a concept called parallel computing, 
which is basically taking multiple threads or multiple tasks and jobs and pushing off the processors to do them simultaneously. So, like, for example, adding two numbers together, like, do a calculation to find pi on one at this digit and then add 500 numbers on this processor. And there's a run in tangent. And one good example of this is Virtual Fighter, where each character is rendered off of each chip or each of the processors. Right. But each one of those characters has to wait for the memory buffer. You know, it's like they have to take turns. So Yu Suzuki was really good at doing that, you know. I mean, but he's one of the few, you know, that can code an assembly like that and and orchestrate it, if you will, like they're talking, to make it so that each processor will wait its turn to access the memory buffer. You know, just third-party developers didn't have time for that or money to spend reading this literature and learning these chips, you know, so they could code assembly for it. Exactly. Um, I think it's funny, though, that Namco came along and mimicked. It says, you know, there's not a, you know, two video processors create a single visual experience that can't be mimicked by a single graphics chip. And then Namco comes along and mimics it with Ridge Racer at a better frame rate, right? No, not only that, they do it like four times, three times in a row after that. Tekken 1, 2, 3, Ridge Racer. Mm -hmm. And I mean, say what you will about the Saturn and how great it was. I'm going to be honest, Tekken and Ridge Racer really ran circles around anything that the Saturn could throw out. Hmm. And that's on one processor. And like we said before, I mean, a lot of the people were just working with a 16-bit processor. Do you guys agree with that, Claire, Peter? My take on it is, you know, so I'm not a technical guy. I mean, I'm not entirely sure, you know, one chip, eight chips, whatever. I guess if I go to the store and I buy a bag of chips and there's only one chip inside the bag of chips, that's kind of annoying. (laughs) Maybe that's what they were going for. I don't know. Keep them coming, Peter. Keep them coming. But I mean, like, do you guys, what do you guys think? VF, uh, Virtual Fighter 2, I mean, obviously coded by gods um, ver- on those two chips versus, you know, the Tekken series. Well, the thing is, is that not only did Tekken have that graphical prowess, but it also had great gameplay and memorable characters. I mean, everyone, a lot of people can name, you know, Heihachi, Mishima, the Mishimas, uh, Yoshimitsu, all those other characters. I mean, even people that really don't aren't deep into fighting games, but you ask them to name off a virtual fighter character, like maybe Aki was it Akira, right? Akira, Akira. Akira. I mean, that's all I know Hi. off the top of my head, and I and I played Virtual Fighter. I'm just saying, for example, that's why I think those ones are pretty successful. That they had that development team and the prowess on top of that. Oh, I hear you. I hear you, and it's true. I mean, you know. They had an easier system to program for, so they were able to put out. They were able to be more prolific too, you know, because they were able to uh, make these titles in half the time, you know. So, um, moving on, a formidable Sega custom sound processor. Now, I agree with this. I agree with this. A formidable custom sound processor SCSP from Yamaha, which includes a 128-step digital signal processor DSP and provides up to 32 voices and CD audio quality. The audio subsystem also includes a 68,000 chip that they obviously got to find some way to use all those leftover Genesis chips (laughs) that allows programmers to create sensational effects such as 3D sound and reverb. Because audio is handled by its own dedicated processor, the performance and capabilities are maximized. This creates an opportunity for phenomenal music sequences, sound effects, 
and other audio extravagances. I don't think we can disagree here, right, guys? No. Absolutely not. The no. 68,000 68, is hands down one of my favorite chips of all time, either sound or well that's just the driver yeah Yeah. so so it's driving that yamaha chip though and uh and that yamaha chip just blows the playstation away i mean listen to that game stream you guys did a panzer dragon saga or or even panzer dragons i mean it really shines it's it's using all those voices right guys yeah i mean yeah it's it's fantastic i mean i mean i I think the 68000 itself alone is a great chip for sound but even driving it it's fantastic as well and it just goes to show how well the yamaha guys were at creating this, these chips that can be so versatile mm-hmm. i mean even at one point i think carmack didn't he want he do a lot of the processing off of that sixty-eight thousand because he just knew how he it actually worked. did he yeah you know you're right he uh he used that chip for you know things that it shouldn't have been used for basically just because it was a familiar chip yeah, and he wasn't, he wasn't the only one. Like, the folks that did the Shining Force 3 games ended up using that chip for additional processing to sort of mask loading times and just a whole bunch of other random improvements. So, you know, it was a phenomenal uh, sound uh, chip, and ultimately, you know, some of the more clever programmers found mm-hmm. really interesting ways of using it for additional graphics processing and, and, and the like. So that's really phenomenal. It's just fantastic. It, it it drove the the Neo Geo. It drove a lot of the Genesis processing stuff. But Pat, and, the, the sixty eight thousand isn't really responsible for any of the sound that comes out of the Saturn. It, they're just using guess, oh no, I know that. I meant just I meant just the controller itself, the chip itself. Oh okay. The power it has to do all that cool stuff. Yeah. Just, earlier in the document, um, Sega says that they'll leave no room for debate with the Saturn's superiority. And you know what? I feel that. In the sound department, that's one of the only places where that really rings true, mm-hmm. um, especially in comparison with the competition. Um, you know, you have the PlayStation, which it has solid sound, and then you have the 64, which, um, you know, handled sound in software mode. So I think that in games like Panzer Dragoon Saga, as you mentioned, um, the um, ability of this Yamaha processor to kind of create these organic sounds like the percussion that we hear in the panzer dragoon games and things like that really just set the saturn sound apart from everything else that was out there yeah and because they had the 32 voices and then 128 step digital signal processor so they could the 32 voices they could use for like samples like almost an entire orchestra and then the 128 step digital signal processor they can use for like all the square waves and other whatever those waves are <laughs> waveforms and um, move it all around and make different sounds. So, I mean, honestly, Hitoshi Sakimoto, uh, you know, he, they could create like what you get with Radiant Silver Gun, like this huge, like orchestral thing, you know, um, these like really grandiose pieces. Oh, like the Sokyu Gurentai soundtrack, you know, on that chip. It just sounds so full and amazing, you know. I agree with you, Claire, 100%. And of course, Nintendo 64 had no sound chip to speak of you know so okay moving right along so a 32-bit sh1 chip that acts as the controller for the cd-rom subsystem besides having this dedicated processor which is able to decompress data from the cd on the fly the sega saturn's double speed cd-rom drive also has its own dedicated 512k cache memory 
This means that none of the main system overhead goes into accessing data from the CD drive. Because the CD drive functions independently and has its own memory cache, the Sega Saturn can optimize the CD medium to its fullest potential. Typically, a CD is used as a delivery mechanism only. The game is loaded off the CD into the system's memory, and that's that. With this optimized subsystem, a game can continuously access the video and other data from the CD as the game requires it. It also means that there will be a significant increase in the speed of loading the game and movement from level to level, so there's no slowdown in gameplay. Thus, the massive storage of the CD is used to the greatest effect. It is something that no cartridge-based system or any competing CD-based system can provide. Except maybe, you know, 3DO, PlayStation, and N64. <laughs> I mean, I think even N64 was able to stream data, music data off of the chip, like Angel Studios did, like the Tony Hawk stuff. They used MP3. Not you guys have anything to say about this? Um, yeah, I, I was curious what you guys thought in the, on the, uh, just the writing, the speeds of the Sega Saturn. Because I think once it got to a 2X drive, to be honest, I think a lot of the loading really became unnoticeable compared to a lot of the systems. I don't know if maybe it's just me, but, like, I mean, a 1X is extremely slow, but a 2X, I think, is almost unnoticeable in, in a reasonable amount of time. Hmm. So I was curious what your guys' thoughts on the loading speed of the Saturn were. You know, my primary comparison for this is going to be the PlayStation, and I really can't say that I noticed a difference in load times between the two of those. So when I was reading this claim about um, no competing CD-based system being able to provide um, like reasonable loading times, I was just kind of like, well, um, if it was that big of a deal, I didn't catch it. I feel the same way. I mean, I, I could not notice a difference between the PlayStation and... The Saturn, and personally, I think they both. I believe I they both use two X speed drives, right? Sure. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be any much different. I mean, at that point, it would just come down to how the hardware handles the information from the disc. Exactly. So, so yeah, uh, nope. I I don't think we could be able to tell, and mm-hmm. uh, really, I can't. I mean, besides some of the lowing stuff, I really can't tell what they're doing going with this. And yet, no. No other system can provide this. Okay, so Sega's smoking something here. Okay, so an SMPC, System Manager and Peripheral Controller, was built around a Hitachi microcontroller and manages input from peripherals such as the game controller. I wonder if that has anything to do with the serial port either. I don't know. Um, Doesn't say. But a, A system control unit, SCU, which acts as the glue of the system, and includes a DSP high math chip and a DMA memory handler, the SCU synchronizes the activities of various subsystems and processors through the bus system. It is the conductor of the Sega Saturn multiprocessor orchestra. I think they just sort of went with an um, acoustic set, personally. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you're going to cram this many pricey chips into a box, you... One more pricey chip to try to make sense out of all the chaos isn't going to make much of a difference. Well, and this doesn't this just sound like like this whole bit about the SMPC to you know manage input from peripherals? Well, every single game system has to somehow has. manage input from peripherals. So you know it's like yes, I realize this is a very sort of self congratulatory article, and they're just going to 
blow their own horn and all the rest of it. But this just to me seems completely over the top. That's like saying, you know, they're just stating just the obvious. This bicycle has two wheels, you know, and it just it's the best thing ever because this bicycle has two wheels. So like, is it really even necessary? Like to me, that was just way out there. Yeah, I think the bottom line here is um, you can have whatever kind of conductor that you want for this multiprocessor orchestra. But the bottom line is every conductor has to conduct from a score. And if the developers, you know, aren't able to give this multiprocessor orchestra material to work with, then there's not much point in really hyping it. Well, then they go on to talk about the price. The price is right. Uh no. Okay. Um, the sum of these perfectly orchestrated parts is the potential for arcade quality performance in a compact, affordable system at a price between $350 and $400. Uh, $299. I was about to make that joke. You, you were about to make that bitch. joke. I stole it from you now. Uh, the Sega Saturn. So at a price between $350 and $400, the Sega Saturn will attract the sophisticated consumer who appreciates the knock your socks off, can't find it anywhere else, home entertainment experience of Sega Saturn game titles. Sophisticated consumers that respond to Ice Cube and Naked Lady ads. Hey, those are the best kind of ads, man. But yeah, like you said, $2.99. Right. I feel good, though. Guys, we're sophisticated. You know, that makes me feel nice about myself. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know who else is sophisticated? The Neo Geo guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The 3DO guys, right? They were sophisticated. Yeah. Please don't compare the 3DO to the Neo Geo ever again, my friend. But <laughs> but anyways, but... The price one, is one right. Things, yeah, the price is not right. Uh, but the thing is that, like Dave brought up with the 299 I mean, even even though it was, you know, 299 not in reality, it was really 350 at the end of the day, plus the controllers, the memory card, the games... Um, it was still a brilliant strategy, and I think it, it's one of the re- really big uh, Achilles' heel to the Saturn and its expensive-ass price point. Okay. Consumers will also be able to buy Sega Saturn systems under other brand names at different price points. Hitachi, Yamaha, and JVC, all of which are supplying Sega with critical technology for the Sega Saturn board, will each be marketing the Saturn under their own brand name. This type of arrangement is typical among Japanese companies and demonstrates the respect and credibility Sega has established among major Japanese manufacturers. Doesn't just take a page out of the 3DO book. Uh, Together, the original Sega Saturn, along with the private label versions, all of which will display the Saturn icon, will create more choices for customers and a larger, more vital market for software developers. Only in Japan, of course. We never got that. I know. I want to get a V-Saturn. Yeah, I do too, but I don't have money left to do that. I think that's like second mortgage money. So this being in this document, though, makes me wonder if at one time they, you know, had plans of bringing any of this stateside. I'm wondering why they're mentioning it whenever... I know, um, and this is a document meant for the U.S. I mean, it's like hyping the U.S. launch, so that is a good point. I think it was more of a success issue. Like in Japan where it was successful, so they had a reason to release the V Saturn and the High Saturn. But in America, I mean, they could barely sell a couple different versions of the Saturn. I mean, if they couldn't do that, I mean, why would they even want to put out these 
even more expensive Saturns, mm-hmm. especially ones that may be used for navigation purposes, like the the Navi. The high Saturn Navi. It just sounds like they want to take any opportunity they can to toot. Even if it means mentioning something that's completely, like, not relevant to... I don't know. Maybe I mean, maybe stockholders were actually reading this document and they were like, hmm... You know, maybe that just made it sound much more appealing to them because they're like, you know, thinking about these, you know, relationships with other manufacturers. And one of the things I'm curious about is if they actually did a lot of the these models for the Korean market, because I know that Samsung Saturn. Yeah. And yeah, I think that might be another reason. Actually, was the Samsung Saturn? Do we know if there's actually, you know, that that purpose or was it just a renaming? Just like putting a logo on it and distribution. Oh, I don't right, actually so- know the, the answer to that, but uh, they don't mention it here. So I don't think I'm not sure if Samsung actually provided any of the tech on the board. So that's a good point. I know I Sanyo you. did. I, I, in some cases, Sanyo did. because They have those, those Sanyo drives. But uh, hardware and software equals the ultimate game experience. Every company offering next-generation video game system will make a case for the superiority of its own technology. But the question always remains, how well can the company exploit the technology for the consumer's maximum amazement? Are polygons rendered because they can be? Or did they add up to a never-before-seen immersive experience that takes the player out of there past the fringes of the known experience? Yeah. At this period, I would very much have to say polygons are rendered because they can be. (laughs) You know, to hell with all the 2D visuals. We will render polygons now because we can. Definitely. And as many as possible as we can at the same time. Um, With the dawn of 3D, I think it was all about the polygons. So Jaggy polygons. (laughs) It can be argued now that maybe that's still the focus, but... After seeing some of that new Detroit becoming human footage compared to the E3 trailer, mm. I don't think that's the case at all anymore. Mm. Yeah, well, we're, a lot of us are going back and appreciating the finer thing. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said for 2D gameplay, especially on the Saturn. And so a lot of the, the success that the Saturn would see in Japan would be because of the strengths of those 2D titles. But uh, we just wouldn't see a whole lot of that here. In Sega's case, the company is primed and ready to use the Sega Saturn as a platform for inspiring, or horrifying in this case, its developers and astounding its customers. No other competitor has Sega's unique relationship with the consumer market. Wait, let me read that again. No other competitor Nintendo, has Sega's unique relationship with the consumer market it comes from sega's long-standing arcade heritage and in-house software success sega stands out as the only next generation manufacturer that offers complete integration of hardware and software capabilities creating its own game titles makes sega that much smarter about what its customers want and what it takes to design a great system and hardware i'm gonna stop there I don't even okay. know where to start <laughs> yeah. with that one. Claire, what take this one. <laughs> yeah, um, my favorite line in this entire document is in this excerpt, that Sega stands out as the only next-gen manufacturer that offers integration of hardware and software capabilities. What does that even mean? I mean, every manufacturer of that generation um, developed their own games for their own systems. So right. for them to kind of say that is just like, where is this coming from? 
I think maybe they're trying to do some analogy with the arcade and how they make the arcade hardware spe- and the software for that arcade that powers the board. Yeah, but I mean... Sure, like, but when we're talking the Saturn... Yeah, that's what I'm a bit confused of. That's what I would think that their their thing was, but maybe they just had a brain fart. I mean, here, editing it this... Through. Okay, fine. Like, let's say, in all fairness, that that's what they were doing, right? Even this next generation that they're talking about is going to include a console, the, the Ultra 64, that's based on arcade hardware that's out there at this time. You know what I'm saying? Or it's like soon to be out there. It's in all the trade mags and stuff like that. So even even if you were to take it that way, they're like just bold face lying right here. They're, and I'm imagining... Well, I, th- I, think, I think they meant sort of how the... Yeah, they were definitely lying about that, with, especially with Sony, in Sony's case. I mean, just imagine if this document was intended for stockholders who know nothing about video games. They're just investing. Literally, they just believe anything that they would tell them, right? And if they're telling them here, you know, they're trying to instill confidence in these people to invest. You know, they're saying nobody else does this. Uh, um, Yeah, no, that's not true at all. I mean, Nintendo has been developing in-house since, you know. Well, the thing with Nintendo is that they didn't fully develop the the Ultra 64. It was a partnership with some 3d company no but i'm talking about the famicom though and nintendo's had arcade units you know oh, yeah I mean? in that case well i think i think they specified this gen though in the document well okay i agree with claire though that that is probably one of the most ridiculous statements in oh no document. it's definitely a big lie it's definitely a big lie i'm just trying to i'm trying to play devil's advocate and see where mm. they're going with it but mm. it's getting a little bit hard and harder to justify that i know right i mean like yeah, it's just it's funny. I don't even we don't even have to joke about it. It's funny enough in in and of itself. Yeah, because it says the only next gen manufacturer, and then they go on to say consumers don't buy a game system for its own sake. They um, <laughs> let's see, they don't buy a game system for its own sake. Says the vice president of Sega of America Marketing, they buy it for the fun that they anticipate from the game software that it will provide. And how then, disappointing um, if you're a U.S. customer. Right? They, they say this, and then they give us that, like, meager launch lineup. The, I'm a Sega fan, you guys, but uh, this is just, this is hilarious. Um, the result of this integration is that Sega has become a screaming success, as any Sega TV ad will attest, <laughs> concluding with its hallmark Sega Scream, with a stronghold over the Japanese arcade business and the number one position in the U.S. 16-bit video game market. Okay, I think that's just a bold-faced lie. Well, no, they, they at this at the time of this document, they had 51% of the market. So, like, they're oh able, really yeah yeah as oh, wow. as of 1990 end of 1992. The market changed in their favor. They had like fifty-one percent. They only held that for, they only held that for a short period of time. But you know, what 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 year did this come out? I mean, if if this document, uh... well, this came out in November, or sorry, this came out in ninety-four, shortly after the release in Japan. So they probably lost it by then, right? Yeah, the 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 stockholders don't know that. (laughs) Or wait, no, they probably do know that. I don't know. At this time, I have to assume that they're telling the truth. Yeah, I mean, but that's loosely. I, I think in um, at least in America's case, the Super Nintendo had that upper edge compared mm-hmm. to the Genesis. But I mean, just barely. Anyway, consumers don't buy a video game system. Sake. So, um, in fact, Sega essentially invented the 16-bit market with its Sega Genesis system, which has reached an install base of almost 20 million since its introduction in 1989. 
Sega Genesis has achieved hit status to a large extent because of Sega's astute software design decisions, such as the development of Sonic the Hedgehog. Ironic, we wouldn't see a true Sonic game on Saturn, but a game character that has one of the most recognizable personalities among school-age children. Overall, the Sega brand is one of the top five coolest brands among U.S. teenagers alongside household names like Nike. Well, you know, and so at that point, that's probably fairly accurate. I mean, they did really well with the Sega Genesis and, you know, but they just flushed it all down the toilet with the Saturn and have known better because they had just been successful with 16-bit Genesis and they just, I mean, they just let it all go. So, mm-hmm. And what about- did you think, Peter, of that launch lineup? I mean, you were there. Yeah, I was there at launch and I mean, Virtua Fighter was title for the market the game itself wasn't uh you know quite what it should have been uh daytona usa great game but it could have turned out much better and all that sega you know needed for them to uh lose that uh, presence of mind is just the comparison to the playstation equivalents and they, it, there just was no comparison so you know they just poor decisions there mm-hmm. and keep in mind that this document was written at a time before Sega would shoot themselves in the foot so many different ways, including that botched launch. You know, at this point, they still were thinking that Saturn Day, you know? So, um, you know, maybe they were they were thinking, oh, yeah, this is going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. You know, we're going to release some great launch titles, not some really rushed launch titles. And yeah, a few I, of them. I just think if they just went out the door with, out the door with um, Sonic instead of the Knights game, I think maybe it would have a better edge in the U.S. market, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that every little bit would have helped, uh, and, a, and a true Sonic game is what we all wanted. Um, and by the time by the time they probably could have given us one, honestly, most people had moved on. I mean, well, no, I shouldn't say that. I mean, when Sonic Adventure came out for Dreamcast, people cared. It, it was great, you know, but I mean, I think that a lot of the gamers had kind of grown up and matured and were also interested in other things, you know? Obviously, Yuji Naka was interested in doing other things, you know? Um, yeah, before we leave this section of this sure. document, I've got a um, nod to the last line that the Sega brand is one of the top five coolest brands among U.S. teenagers. I would love to know the sampling method that came up with this. I would really love to know um, how they came to this conclusion. Oh, yeah. Well, probably a lot of like teen choice polls or something. I don't know. <laughs> like they had, I mean, Sega did have a really good marketing rapport with with younger kids and teens, um, especially in like 1992. They did like, they hired celebrities, you know, they hired, yeah, they hired like teen celebrities. They did like park things, you know, they had like a Sega amusement park or like at least like a tie in with one of like the bigger parks. They did stuff, you know, they did a hell of a lot more stuff than Nintendo did to, to try to court the consumer and, and to try to win over that 51% market share. So it's this is sad, people. The, the, this statement, Claire said, it is incredibly sad because this is the last time that that will be true. Sega it, is one of the top five coolest brands among U.S. teenagers. Anyway, an unparalleled arcade heritage. First and foremost, Sega's forte and creative core is at its arcade business. Sega Enterprises Limited, parent company of Sega of America, was founded in 1954 as a coin-operated entertainment business 
and has parlayed its 40 years of experience into a formidable arcade franchise. Sega essentially owns the arcade market in Japan, and some of the game programmers in its Japanese arcade software division, AM2, have achieved rock star celebrity status among Japanese gamers. Capcom, Namco, Taito, I'm sure they would all beg to differ. Yeah, but to be honest, I mean, you can't deny they have huge force and a lot of really cool gimmicks. No, yeah, yeah it's not you're being right. mean, but like like cool gimmicks, like you know, Hang On, or you know, uh, some of the other ones where it's like Top Skater, you know, that well, kind I mean, of stuff. This is talking about though, like forty years of arcade. So if you really do look, like you take Shenmue for an example, and you know you've got like those classic arcade games that Sega did. Not to mention like the boxing game, you know, that they did, like some of those like mechanical arcade style games. So I know they've got like. It's true. They, you know, they had a lot of great games, but I'm sure like just making a statement like that, obviously to shareholders like Sega owns the arcade market. I mean, anyway, it's just funny. Sega of Japan is known far and wide for taking risks and creating over-the-top games that no one has dared to build, leading the way with innovations like 3D characters and lifelike visuals. In fact, Sega of Japan first conceptualizes the game experience and then designs its high-end arcade hardware around it. Arcade games have thus far offered the ultimate gaming experience because the hardware, until now, has been exponentially more powerful than what could be delivered in the home. After all, not too many consumers can afford a 7-foot-tall arcade unit containing the most expensive, sophisticated technology and costing tens of thousands of dollars. To get access to state-of-the-art in video games, consumers have been obliged to drop their quarters in video game arcades. But they can certainly afford a $400 over-engineered black box. <laughs> well, well, I mean, if you, if you put it into perspective, I mean, these arcade machines were, I mean... I don't think they were about tens of thousands of dollars back then, like maybe a couple thousand. But I mean, with inflation, it's probably around that that uh, that area. Yeah, I think but. you said this before, Pat. But it was that, um, like, take Virtua Fighter, the the stand up arcade. Like that thing costs so much money to build. I think just the cost of it was one of the things that made Sega think that they couldn't really do that at home. And then like Sony just kind of like proved to them in a really short amount of time that. Oh my gosh, these guys are actually doing it. <laughs> you know, so now we got to like turn around and do it. Yeah. What do you guys think about did Sega really achieve what they set out to do with the Saturn with the bringing the arcade experience home? I, I don't think so. Um I mean, yeah, we got we got a lot of ports on the Saturn, but um in their first sentence they say that arcade units have been exponentially more powerful than what could be delivered into the home until now, but the Saturn was not as powerful as a lot of the stuff that we saw in arcades. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. And you know what, in all honesty, this is just such an odd thing for them to say because in the one sentence, you know, they're saying, so, you know, we've got the arcade market, we are the best, and essentially, you know, implying that that's a major revenue stream. But we've got this Sega Saturn coming out, which is going to mean that people don't have to go to the arcades anymore. So it's just very odd that they put it that way. And I mean, ultimately, yeah, they did have a lot of ports. And, you know, you could even argue that the gameplay was there in those ports. But boy, it just absolutely did not deliver mm. on the promise of bringing that actual arcade experience to the home. Not even close. Really, though? Like, so, I'm going to disagree with you guys there. Like, yeah, wait, I feel like, they, Dave, what? I feel the same way. Well, I mean, I feel, okay, like, not... I mean, we're allowed to disagree, but I mean, 
definitely I feel like um, they tripped on a few of the games for sure. Like especially ones that they farmed out to like the annex teams and stuff like that. I mean, my one of my one of my guilty pleasures uh, touring car was nowhere near as good as the arcade rendition. But I mean, like Daytona, like it, it felt like it had the gameplay. It brought the gameplay home. And I mean, Sega, are we going to argue that like Sega Rally didn't have the arcade feel? I mean, I feel like that and like Virtual On and um, you know, perhaps what's the other big one that like really brought Die Hard Arcade? Die Hard Arcade. I mean, of course, any STV game, you know, that they converted to the home did it made a pretty good transition, right? Yeah, I mean, we have a uh, Radiant Silver Gun made it really was a really great transition. Die Hard Arcade. Yeah, House I of mean, the Dead was kind of a trip up though. Well, that, that's that's a different. That's because we discussed in the previous cast that it was done by a Tantalus. company that didn't know how to do it. Right. right. Okay. So when they farmed it out, yeah, they kind of. Okay, so it's a mixed bag, basically. Yeah, for me, the consistency just wasn't there. I mean, like you said, there were some games, um, some ports that were pretty Virtual faithful Fighters, to the yeah. originals. Yeah. But, you know, um, I just feel like that statement's a little bit overblown for what we actually got. Yeah, they're making arguments of convenience. Like, they're flip-flopping, you know. Our arcade business is strong. Oh, but, you know, we're going to have it in the home. And like you said, then you won't need to support our arcade business, right? You know, I don't know. Why would they do that? Well, the cool th- the thing is that a lot of the arcade ports that were really, really good, like, you know, Boomerang Cotton, things like Radiant Silver Gun, uh, Battle Grega, mm-hmm. all those are arcade ports, and they were great in Japan, but mm-hmm. the U.S. just didn't get they it. Didn't get them. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I mean, were there any, like, STV games besides Die Hard that made it to the U.S.? House of the Dead. Besides House besides of the Dead? House of the Dead. Um, I don't really count it. Not that I can think of off the top of my head, but... uh so rolling along here, because Sega has produced so many runaway successes for the arcade market, like Virtua Fighter and Daytona USA, to name just a few, it knows better than any other video game maker what it takes to make an adrenaline-producing, console-pounding arcade game. And now that arcade-quality technology is making its way into the home via Sega Saturn, Sega will be there with the most in-demand arcade titles in Sega Saturn versions. Virtual Fighter and Daytona USA among them. Essentially, Sega's arcade business can now serve as a test bed for the hottest, wildest, and most compelling arcade-style games, the best of which will be converted to Sega Saturn and sold at retail. This kind of inside market research is something that Sega's competitors simply can't get. Only Sega has the full depth of video game products that reach from the highest-end arcade to the average home living room, and only Sega can take advantage of the synergy among them. Unless you count Sony's partnership with Namco and Nintendo's Ultra 64. <laughs> lots of buzzwords in this. Lots of buzzwords, lots of uh, lots of different uh, things in here. Um, one of the things that I, I think was funny is... Uh, it's repeating arcade quality technology is making its way into the home via the Saturn, mm-hmm. which I mean is true for games that are 2D, mm-hmm. and those are powerful ones that are one to one. But you know, we didn't get any of those in the U.S. Why would we get those? Right, and the mention of Daytona. I mean, I'm going to keep coming back to it. The fact that we got it at 20 frames a second. Um, yes, it did get converted to the Sega Saturn, but there was a massive cut in quality. Well, and, you know, they do have a point here, like, probably out of all the video game companies of the day, they did have the strongest link to uh, the arcade division, and they could have just done so much more with that. If those sports were all consistently solid, 
I mean, I'd agree that some were great and some were very much sort of hit and miss. But if they were all solid, that would have been a massive advantage for them. Mm -hmm. So they laid it out, but they just didn't capitalize. Yeah, there were some games that they just left in the arcades. Ooh, the one that somebody mentioned was Top Skater. And I was like, I would give a give a left arm for that a conversion of Top Skater on the Saturn. That would have been awesome. Wait, wait, wait. Top Skater was on was on a Sega Sega top, arcade top, board? Yeah, Top Skater was uh, Model 2. And, man, wouldn't that have been great if it would have come to the Saturn? Oh, man, that game was a, the bl- a blast to play in arcades. I remember going to Chuck E. Cheese. I even oh. emulate that thing. It's it's great. Like with a How is it without the skateboard? Pad. Oh, I just use the 360 con- analog control pad. You can, you can you know, work up the settings and it works. But anyway, nice. um, don't want to get caught up on that. I just want to say that um, it is possible that since this is a public document and I don't know... I know this came out like early 94, mid or early 94, so I don't know if this predates Namco and Sony's relationship, but this was a public document, so it's very well, it's very possible that they read this and was like, that's a great idea, (laughs) let's partner up, you know, with an arcade division, and then, you know, Namco gave Sony a lot of great arcade ports, you know, so there's, uh, there's that to consider. But moving on, knowing the consumer like no one else. For the consumer at the controls of a game system in his or her living room, Sega has also developed a booming homegrown software business. Sega keeps them continually on the edge of their seats with the world's largest library of 16-bit games. Game software revenues comprise a full 40% of Sega of America's business. To support Sega Saturn, Sega is spending tens of millions of dollars on the development of Sega Saturn games. Like the tens of million dollars they spent on that Theater of the Eye campaign. Um, As it did with the 16-bit Genesis system, Sega will apply its unrivaled creative and technical resources in creating hit titles that drive the market and blaze a trail for other game developers. Unless they have RPGs or any other cool arcade games, and they're not going to get anything in the U.S. Exactly, right? Um, and then, I mean, here they call out, you know, Sega will apply its unrivaled creative and technical resources. And I'm like, okay, your rival has 49% of the market. Don't get so cocky. <laughs> you have the market by 1%. A select range of proven titles will be converted over from Sega's arcade systems, but many others will be developed from the ground up specifically for Sega Saturn. After all, the entertainment-seeking consumer does not necessarily live by arcade games alone. Sega will ensure that there's something for everyone. Adventure buffs, sports aficionados, and anyone who wants to have some serious fun. Except for fans of JRPGs. Or shoot-em-ups. Hey, we got Congo exclusively in North America. Awesome. You know what? I I take back what I just said. I mean, it it really shows and. The way they treated the games when it came to Dreamcast is that we got a lot more of these games, like the shooters and all that, but a lot of them were actually like Capcom titles. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, a lot of sh- a lot of the shooters. I mean, that at least made it to the U.S. Like both the Giga Wings, mm-hmm. uh, Gunbird. So here in the document, much. here in the document, they're kind of like transitioning right here into like other sections. You know, like they're going to transition into sports here. And they're like, after all, the entertainment-seeking consumer does not necessarily live by arcade games alone. I feel like they're saying, okay, guys, we may have pushed the arcade thing a bit too much. Let's back it off a bit. Because, <laughs> like, they just spent, like, all this time 
you know, bragging about the arcade pedigree. Like, maybe we shouldn't go too hard on the arcade stuff. We don't want to lose them. So, moving on to this next category. Does anybody else have anything else to say about that? That's all I had to say about that. All right. The Sega Sports Franchise. Sports titles will be particularly important because the Sega Saturn buyer may very well be either A, a serious gamer who will lust after dynamic, fast-moving sports action possible on Sega Saturn, and or B, a sports enthusiast who will be awed and impressed by Sega Saturn sports games, which offer league statistics, game action, and realistic participation that can't be had anywhere else. Unless you count that other gray console. Through its Sega Sports label, Sega already has an unparalleled franchise in sports software development. Close to 40% of Sega's software business derives from the Sega Sports family of sports action games. Titles range from basketball, hockey, and baseball to tennis and golf. Some of today's biggest sports stars, such as Joe Montana, Deion Sanders, David Robinson, Mario Lemieux, and Fred Couples, lend their expertise to the development of Sega Sports games. Sega Sports has also obtained licenses from leading sports organizations, the National Football League, National Basketball League, National Association of Stock Car, Auto Racing, and Major League Baseball, to name a few, to ensure the most authentic and realistic gameplay possible. No other video game maker has established these kinds of relationships or has anywhere near the depth and breadth of sophisticated sports titles. EA Sports. It kicked your ass. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Like, what is EA? You know? I don't know what's going on with Sega. It's like they just completely forgot EA was a thing. Trip Hawkins probably read that statement and was like, fuck you guys. I just don't understand, like, their, their thinking. I mean, and it's kind of funny, the foreshadowing where it's like, it's, they're, like they just lose all the EA titles once the Dreamcast hits. It, it, look, I'll just say that it really sounds like, at this point, Sega's living in a bubble here. Like, they just have no concept that, you know, yeah, they have some sports games, but so does pretty much everybody else. And, you know, EA's a big player, and they weren't the only ones uh, back in the day either. So for them to say, you know, we've got this, this is our thing, that is just way over the top. And, you know, I think the consumer could feel that, too. I mean, maybe the investor who had no idea about video games at all might, you know, hear this, listen to this and think, okay, these guys have got it going on. You know, and they could have even got away with it in terms of, you know, the arcade uh, uh, heritage and pedigree and all the rest of it. But in terms of sports games, I mean, everybody was doing sports games. So for them to say this is incredibly arrogant. And I mean, a trade document like this would definitely be read by, you know, EA anybody else in the industry who has a card to play, you know? And so I think that that's kind of offensive to be honest with you. I don't Mm -hmm. think that they would just take that sitting down. Probably not. I mean, I mean, people like to say that the reason that EA stopped it was because of the Sega Saturn's complete and massive failure and lack of support. But I think maybe some of this sort of stuff really pushed that in that direction. It was probably more than one thing. Sports games comprise only a portion though the Sega Saturn game titles under development at Sega of America. At U.S. launch in September. Okay. September. Nope. And on through the Christmas season, the company intends to roll out a range of ultra-cool titles that will appeal to the broadest audience possible. 
Sega's second and third wave of titles will follow not too much further in the future. Titles that will immerse the consumer even further in the amazing realities made possible by the Sega Saturn. So at this point, they seem, they're still very optimistic, thinking that they're going to launch the machine in September. Yeah, I don't know why why Sega Japan wanted that push to beat the PlayStation. I mean, they must have realized if they didn't have those titles, nobody would buy it. I mean, that buying power that came with the CD and the 32X sort of dwindled a bit. For sure. You know, Sega was successful launching alongside PlayStation in Japan. And so I just wonder whether they felt that just like with Genesis versus Super Nintendo in North America, they felt that they needed to get ahead. I know that Sega of America intended to launch in September. They had no intention of going um, before that because they wanted the third-party games to be there. They wanted the uh, retail distribution channels to be lined up. But mm-hmm. uh, Sega of Japan just said, no, we're, you guys are going to be doing it early, so go now. And so they just had to go with what they had at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm just surprised that they, they had all those titles. They didn't port, like, not even close to half over to the U.S. or do a translation of them. Mm-hmm. This document exists. It's, like, frozen in a time capsule or, like, in a period of Sega thinking that everything looked perfect, you know? They hadn't begun to, like, facepalm with every, like, big blunder or failure, you know? I'm sure Sega of America was just looking at everything that had been lined up up to this point minus the all of the consoles that they had to support at the time and they were thinking wow this is going to be great but i mean you know it's funny because they talk about you know they talk about the games being released further down the line and you know offering amazing realities and i just think it's ironic that you know the strongest games early on you know aside from like okay panzer dragoon right um, that was astonishing. That was that was awesome. But I mean, like Clockwork Knight or even a stall. You know, those were two of the, I think like the the stronger early titles. And I mean, those are like two D titles. Really. I mean, Clockwork Knight has some three D stuff in it, but it's basically a side scroller. You know, and and a stall is like one of the best early games on the Saturn. And I mean, it's still just a two D platformer. So you know, so much for amazing realities. But on that note. We're going to go on to raising the bar for game development. This part is going to be interesting, you guys. Besides enthralling customers with its own impressive array of titles, Sega's software development effort has an additional benefit. It creates a solid market for third-party developers and gives developers access to Sega's own programming expertise. More than 100 third-party developers are creating products for Sega Saturn and working closely with Sega to explore the universe of awesome opportunities that Saturn provides. Yeah, maybe in Japan they'd give them all those all those developing tools. Yeah. The Sega Graphics Library wasn't even made available until like partway through 1995. Exactly. They threw the book at them, basically. They pretty much threw the book at those developers. Uh, several thick manuals for each freaking chip, literally. I mean, and I have them all in PDF format on the archive if you guys really care to go look at them. But I mean, remember when we were talking before about how there were eight processors and each one of those chips had like a coprocessor or a driver? There's literally a thick manual for each one of those. And they, they were literally like telling these developers, you're going to code an assembly and you're going to read and learn every single chip. And when you want to do a certain thing you're going to have to go grab that manual off the shelf and read on that chip how to do that function and you know, then address the memory and stuff like that it's just ridiculous 
there's a reason why they went with the the um, Windows uh, NT technology once it came out for the Dreamcast. Uh, you mean the CE embedded? Yeah, sorry, the Windows CE embedded. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean well, there's, there's libraries, especially with the especially with Win, with the DirectX stuff, really made a difference with the Dreamcast. But the thing oh. is, Sega's own libraries were so efficient for Dreamcast that most third parties didn't even use the the CE. Only like like some quick PC ports used that. Like Soldier of Fortune used it, and I almost feel like it would have been a better game if they just used Sega's own graphics libraries. I find it ironic that, you know, in order to beat Nintendo in the 16-bit era, Sega had to be better towards third parties. And they did that by providing, you know, a more attractive licensing model compared to Nintendo's practices and all the rest of it. And so they created a better environment for the third parties, and they got third-party games, loads of them. You know, and then comes the Saturn, and they create this very complicated machine. And yes, there's, you know, an encyclopedia full of documentation for it, but here comes Sony, and they create a very simple environment for those developers to produce their games in. And so, you know, Sony ended up using Sega's own tactics against them in just the very next generation. So mm-hmm. I find that there's so much irony in this document because, you know, they're now the king of the hill, and so they're calling the shots, and, you know, they're so amazing, and, you know, everything's fantastic and rosy, and their very own tactics get used against them to just devastating effect. To be fair, it was never their intention to not release us, uh, graphics libraries. It's just like I said, they, they just got so far behind having to go back and retool the hardware. They basically lost that time. And then they had to spend that first year while software was coming out using just you know raw assembly to build those graphics libraries and kick them out to developers. And by the end of that year, they lost like half of that developer base just because they were all horrified and jump ship you know so it's ironic it's sad it's just the way things happen because sega develops many of its own game titles it sets an example for the third party development community setting high standards for the game programming on sega saturn system since the sega development team creates games that showcase the saturn's unique features developers can take their cue from sega and learn how to gain the most pizzazz from the saturn themselves They look to Sega's software development team to break new ground and define the parameters of possibility. Yeah, learn how to gain the most pizzazz is you must learn assembly. Well, I mean, they had had ability to program in C. I know that they had that ability. Yeah, but I keep saying, like, C was not... But C was too high level. Like, it was too bloated for, for the Saturn. It wouldn't run efficiently. You could do it, but you wouldn't get the efficiency, you know? And, well, and I mean, like, there's no, there's no loading to it. I mean, the thing no, is, it's, it's, it's literally a, just converting... A sim- there's converting. too many objects. It's object-oriented, C++, not not raw C. Well, C++. Well, no, raw C is... Well, the raw C and raw C++ are two different things, though. Right, but I'm talking about C++. Well, no, C++ is absolutely too bloated for that. I'm just saying that C would be a better fit for the Saturn. And I, I can imagine that people probably program for it, I mean... Mm-hmm. I just don't ever remember hearing of anybody who had any kind of huge success. Um, they just ran into roadblocks because they were never able to get down to what they always say, down to the metal and be able to really get the the most speed out of those chips, especially because they're always having to combat the fact that all of this hardware needs to be working together in, in harmony. And it's difficult to do that with C. 
Um, and I mean, like Team Andromeda, you know, when they were pulling off all those tricks with like this Vi, you know, they were really, really taking, I mean, they really knew that hardware backwards and forwards. But anyway, we raise and set the bar for our developers in terms of what can be done with the technology, what kind of quality and features and performance Sega Saturn customers will expect, says Joe Miller, Senior Vice President of Sega of America Product Development. Rather than competing with its third-party publishers, Sega actually creates the market for them. Third-party publishers appreciate not only Sega's programming finesse, but also its in-your-face advertising and sense of fun and daring. You sure that advertising wasn't already played out in 1992? But anyway, all of which have combined to make Sega an industry leader. They know that Sega will deliver the market that is primed and eager for a growing library of outrageous gaming experiences. Sega didn't really deliver much of a market for its third parties this time around. That's kind of unfortunate, really. I hate to bag on Sega or the Saturn being such a diehard fan. And I mean, I'll be the first to say I'm like a huge fan of, of the U.S. library in terms of like the fact that there are, you know, at least a good like 80 to 100 like solid games in the U.S. library. But I mean, you know, people are going to compare it to the PlayStation that had like 800 good games or I don't know, a thousand good games. I mean, they had so many good games. And then and then the the Japanese library, you know, so that's where I'm coming from on it. Um, Exactly. Everyone here knows that the Saturn's my favorite console, but sure. um, Comparing it to the PlayStation, the library is definitely lacking. And even the Japanese library, like you said, Mm -hmm. it's not outrageous. That's for sure. I mean, unless you've got a disc wallet full of burned discs, you know? See, for me, that's definitely the most uh, bittersweet thing about it is, yeah, absolutely, I love the U.S. library as well. There's a lot of gold there, but it could have been so much more than it was. And that's Mm -hmm. the frustration. Despite all these blunders that they committed, it was still a solid library. It just could have been so much better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the missed potential for me that really gets me. Mm -hmm. And this document speaks to so much potential you know so much planned potential and then they just missed up time and again you know meeting the quality standards that sega sets won't necessarily be an easy task for some developers understatement of the year you guys but that's more of a benefit than a disadvantage (laughs) because it protects the market uh no it doesn't I even put here in my notes, and, and Pal like this, it doesn't, they just all take the shortcut and program in C. <laughs> or they don't even bother using the second CPU. So, so well, much no, for protecting the, the, the market. I've been looking online while we were doing that, and it looks like there was a lot of C done with it. And it okay. looks like it was done well, but I think one of the things is that, uh, like you said before, it's the processor. I mean, these people weren't expecting to have to work with multi-threading and all that other stuff. So they didn't really know how to take advantage of that, so... Right, like, it was easy enough for them to use one CPU and, you know, use things kind of streamlined the way they normally would. But, I mean, they're not going to get... They're not going to produce titles like Sega Rally or VF2, you know, out of using C with, like, one CPU, you know? I mean, the thing I'm curious about is, were were all these games... Like, the arcade games, they're all one CPU when they're in the arcades itself, right? What do you mean? So like when they're in, so the arcade boards they didn't use two CPUs and a sure weird they jury. They did. Sure they did. Yeah, the System Thirty Two had two processors. Model Model One and Model Two 
I actually don't know the answer to that. I um, gotcha, but, but I, mean, I know that you know did... the STV did. Okay, so then so then Sega itself did have experience with the, the dual CPUs. Sure, they did. They had the experience with dual CPUs from System Thirty Two, from Sega CD, two Motorola's, one one in the in the Genesis and one in the uh, in the add-on, working in tandem with each other, using the same RAM. Uh, well, except for there was a, like a RAM chip inside the Sega CD add-on, and then you had the Thirty Two X. That was that was dual CPU. So I mean. I, don't, I mean, they had a lot of time to cut their teeth on this stuff, and that's why they insisted so much on doing this, because they were just so stubborn in doing it this way. Like, we did it in the arcade, we can do it at home. But they didn't count on the fact... I mean, arcade development is a very, like, niche thing, you know? So they were expecting all these home developers, like third-party home developers, to develop like arcade developers. It just didn't make any sense. Um, what I think is kind of funny about this excerpt is that, you know, Sega really sounds like they're speaking to third-party developers here, saying, you know, it's going to be tough for you to meet our quality standards. Well, in reality, some of Sega's first-party development teams had problems meeting their own quality standards. Very true. And they would talk about it, too, I mean, pretty candidly. Um, you know, they would mention, Yu Suzuki would say, you know, only like one in a hundred programmers can get this kind of speed, you know? Out of uh, out of these CPUs, and and he was talking about like one and a half. He was talking about like one and a half uh, speed. You know, he couldn't even get like the full two CPUs speed out of it, and you know, so it was difficult. Because Sega paves the way with its first-rate titles, it prevents the emergence of an avalanche of schlockware that is sloppily programmed or blindly ported over from other platforms or personal computers. In other words, Sega will ensure that consumers know from the get-go how Sega Saturn games should look, feel, and play. Tell that to John Carmack. Yeah, like, I don't understand why, like, I mean, this article is like a opposite day. It's like, we won't have schlockware. Oh, wait, the Saturn was known for a lot of that in the oh, U.S. Wait, doom. <laughs> you know? I mean, I mean, even... Even Japan, like, look at all those, they're, they're like, dating sims and fucking pachinko games. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, there's just so many of these games out there, and it's like, mm -hmm. I don't, so, I don't, I mean, it's good or bad, I mean, depending on how you feel about it, but like, like, uh, we said, I guess we didn't really experience the Japan, uh, filler wear on the Saturn. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there was plenty of it to speak of in, in the U.S. library as well, you know? Sega will ensure that consumers know from the get-go how Sega Saturn games should look, feel, and play. And between you and me, guys, from the get-go, things were not looking very good. Not at all. <laughs> Definitely 3D not. was not looking great. Power Tools for Creative Wizardry Unlike some of the other next-generation systems, the Sega Saturn doesn't include a software layer which developers must work with when writing their code. Whoa, it's like they're trying to sell it as a benefit here. That's right. They're just masking a massive liability here and turning it into a feature. Yeah. Hey, guys, like, don't worry about all that all that, that easy software stuff. Do it all with hardware with assembly. That's a good idea. Let's sell the angle. It builds Instead, character. Yeah. Instead, Sega provides an additional benefit to programmers by encouraging them to write directly to the hardware in assembly language meaning that their programs address the system components directly. By staying close to the metal, developers get maximum performance and greater control over their code. 
However, they are also free to write higher level languages if they like. As glamorous as this sounds, every third party dev probably shit their pants when they read this. They were just like, oh crap. Actually, like, like team leaders probably were just like, are you kidding me? The only well, people who I think would have been um, thinking this was an okay thing is if they didn't really know what it meant. So, like, mm-hmm. shareholders, for example. I mean, like, Yu Suzuki or, like, you know, old school Japanese game programmers weren't scared by this. I mean, anybody who worked on Genesis probably wasn't scared by this because that's what they did. They, they worked in assembly. But, um, like, this whole new next generation they keep talking about is like, you know, CD-based consoles with BIOS and, you know, advanced systems and graphics libraries and SDK. Like, honestly, like, over the couple years, people had gotten used to, like, a much easier development environment. And so there just wasn't enough time or money for this kind of stuff anymore. To make sure that game developers both large and small have equal access, Sega offers a development system that allows programmers to develop Sega Saturn games for, uh, from either a personal computer or a silicon graphics workstation. And that's ironic since they told SGI to go screw themselves. Sega also provides a steady stream of sample code, documentation, programming libraries, and other resources and tools to keep developers on the leading edge. Lots of manuals. Yeah, lots of manuals. I mean, at this point, at the writing of this document, there really weren't a lot of tools. But some of the most valuable tools come from Sega's third-party partners and companies that specialize in high-end graphics and other dazzling effects. Several top vendors are providing tools for Sega Saturn developers that enable programmers to apply state-of-the-art creative wizardry to the incomparable capabilities of the system. These partners include Duck, employing the industry's highest quality video algorithm. Duck's True Motion technology provides true television quality video images. Duck software works hand in hand with Sega Saturn's two video digital processors, VDP, to let programmers generate character and background images simultaneously, bringing tremendous depth and perspective to gameplay. And I can't disagree there. Duck Video has made it possible for a lot of good FMV for the Saturn. Yes, Although, and uh, keep an ear out because we might be bringing up deck a couple, a couple times later on. Okay, cool. Q Sound, supported by Sega Saturn's sophisticated audio engine, Q Sound is a patented audio technology that provides electronic ventriloquism. With it, programmers can make sound elements, music, sound effects, appear anywhere in a 180 degree arc in front of the game player. The result is a far more realistic soundscape that envelops the listener in an immersive audio environment. Hey guys, is this is this what uh, was in like the Panzer games, like when they have like the, or is that Dolby five point one? Do any of you guys play with like surround sound on the Saturn? No, I don't. Okay. Nope. Well, I mean, would would uh would Dolby surround sound work even work on the Saturn? I mean, it never does it have a digital out option. Maybe it was only Dolby Stereo. It could have been like a virtual surround. I don't know. There, I I heard that some games had like some kind of a surround. Some Saturn games had some kind of a surround feature. Um, Croc does. <laughs> Croc does. Yes, Croc does. How is it implemented? It, it's like, just an option in the menu. Oh, but you have it to wear like headphones, surround. right? Yes. Yeah. Surround. So, so that must be like Q sound. 
That must mm-hmm. be, I wonder. Anyway, moving on. Microsoft. Ooh, already in bed with the enemy. Okay, so Microsoft Soft Image 3D allows programmers to create extremely complex shapes and scenes in record development time. It also includes motion capture technology that developers can use to capture movement and facial gestures from a live actor, and it can apply it to a 3D character. Other effects animate, rotate, illuminate, squash, stress, scale, and shrink images in startlingly naturalistic ways. If you guys check online, there's a there's a ex Sega Traveler's Tales developer. It's called Game Hut on YouTube, and he's doing he's digging up all of this old content that he did from Traveler's Tales, and he actually shows like the Sonic R maps that he did in Soft Image, and they're actually really cool. He does like a zoom out view so you can like see the entire race course. But uh, yeah, Soft Image was cool. Let's see here. Wavefront. Wavefront's gameware lets game developers create characters that move with uncannily realistic motion and to create natural-looking phenomenon like fire, smoke, and rain, as well as effects like bouncing, melting, and twisting. Bouncing. I wonder if that's how Dead or Alive works. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Dave, you get us banned from iTunes. You get us banned. And Wavefront's activation allows the creation of smart objects in a smart environment, optimized for 3D gameplay. They don't quantify what smart or smart objects or smart environments mean, but I wonder if this is the same guy. I wonder if they use this technology in Panzer Dragoon on that uh, water, the water effects. Yeah, I don't know. That was like that was like scrolling layer effects. Like they use like several scrolling layers like on top of each other. It was really, really interesting. Actually, um, if you watch the most recent DF Retro that came out about the Panzer Dragoon series, he explains that, and it's actually really cool. Let's see here. Alias. Alias's suite of sophisticated tools brings developers the ability to create lifelike characters, futuristic vehicles, freeform surfaces, and wonderfully detailed environments. Its latest tools support full-feature polygon modeling, which paves the way for wildly absorbing three-dimensional games. Cross Products. Oh, Cross, they're the ones who make like an SDK, right? Let's see. Cross offers a complete Sega Saturn development system called the SNASM, S-N-A-S-M-2, that is compatible with existing programming tools and platforms, but is also completely optimized for the Saturn development. I actually see these things pop up on eBay from time to time. But yeah, How much do they like usually a, go for? Crazy money. Man. <clears throat> but it's like a third-party development, software development kit. Is it any better than the first-party development kit? I really wouldn't know. I bet Kay would know. But uh, basically, it's just one of those, another one of those things to have if you're a collector, I guess, if you're like a crazy collector. Um, let's see here. We're mo- moving on into the next section, and that is... The first wave won't be the last. We'll see about that. Okay, the first wave of Sega Saturn games will begin to showcase the capabilities of the system, particularly the graphics coprocessors, which enable fast-moving three-dimensional gameplay and allow for dynamic perspective. For example, changing the view of a hockey game on the fly, viewing it from the perspective of the goalie, the guard, or even the puck, 
or watching from an overhead or sideline camera. With the advanced capabilities of the SCSP chip, Sega Saturn games can surround the player with phenomenally realistic sound. The optimized CD subsystem allows developers to use more video footage than ever before and to use it more creatively and flexibly, further immersing the player with the immediacy of full motion video. Okay, so I'm going to stop right here, Dave. I don't really know where to go from this. this. This is just like the joke is making itself at this point. Well, that they that all this talk of like full motion video and they couldn't even bring the MPEG card stateside? Nope. Well, that on top of, you know, the... the Pro, the graphics co- co-processors and all these cool programming things it's like mm-hmm. it's like yeah if they could figure out how to use the damn thing yeah and i mean the immediacy of full motion video i don't know my copy says the idiocy of full motion video so maybe you've got <laughs> the advanced version of the document here i don't know <laughs> right i mean yeah, i mean full motion video was immediate all right like you said peter um thanks to the sega cd and the 32x and the dozen other manufacturers that they kind of rag on in the opening paragraph. Um, I think everybody knew that full motion video was what people were going to hammer on this generation. Yeah, I mean, it was like here and gone, you know? The, that that It was cool, you know, you could edit your own music video, Marky Mark or whatever, you know? And then it was like, okay, that was cool, on to the next thing. I mean, nobody really wanted to play, like, a bunch of FMV games, you know? There are a couple on the Saturn that actually do it justice because they add in more elements than just, you know, simple FMV. But, uh, like, what really hurts me here is that I would have loved to have full motion video. Claire Claire made a great point last cast. Um, would, where was our Lunar, you know, with full motion video provided by the MPEG card, you know? Where it was, was the PS1. Uh, no, but, I mean, she even pointed out that it came over uh, inferior on the PS1, you know, but people were just happy that it came over at all, you know? But um, it really should have been on the Saturn with the MPEG card. But again, right. you know, they just tripped. And I don't want to rag on full motion video too much when, you know, we have masterpieces like Panzer Dragoon Saga that were really um, enhanced by it. it. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, you can't even forget the best full motion video of all video game of all time that never made it stateside, which would, of course, be Eiffel Home. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I mean, like, that used it to the maximum effort of house touring. I mean, you can't get any more epic than house touring in full motion video. I mean, I still can't describe the experience with you guys. It's godly. Well, we got to move on, you guys. So let's see here. The features of the Saturn allow us to give the game player a much more solid feel for being in the world that we've devised, says Robert Leyland a lead programmer at Jumping Jack Software, developer of one of Saturn's launch titles, Gen War. Ooh, great example, guys. <laughs> Actually, this is the one, Peter. Jumping Jack Software. They are the guys that would go on to do Congo, and that's it. And then they would jump ship. <laughs> that's right. You're right. That's it, yeah. Wonderful quote. <laughs> they, they got some real stand-up guys here to, to uh, go on record for this document here. There's a massive improvement in speed. The graphics and backgrounds allow us to create a much more realistic terrain than we can on any other platform, and we can make the players' opponents much smarter, all of which makes for a much more entertaining game. But the first wave of games, innovative and groundbreaking as they will be, represent just the beginning. There is a tremendous amount of headroom in the Sega Saturn system, says Joe Miller. 
the potential for further exploration is vast. And that's not funny, actually. I, I can't joke about that because that potential would never be tapped before the box died out in the yeah, US. I put I put in the thing against that first wave of games innovation, not even close. It it has to be said that as time went on, Saturn games did get, you know, remarkably better compared to the very first you know, wave of titles. I think the, you know, the fallacy here was that the PlayStation's first wave of titles were so much better. And so then it made the Saturn look absolutely inferior. I'd say that by year two or definitely even year three, they were much more competitive with each other. But by then it was kind of too late. Well, yeah, it's like we got to see hindsight is, you know, we got to see the, the PlayStation grow and mature and give us titles in the year 2000, like, um, like Vagrant Story that would just absolutely push that console to its like limits you know we got to see the playstation do that we never got to see the the saturn do that and we know that it's possible it would have been possible if they'd you know if the the money would have been there you know that's the sad thing it's like give the saturn like two or three more years on the shelf and it would have done some amazing things as programmers get better acquainted with the capabilities of the Saturn system, they will begin to discover additional ways to use its outstanding sound, video, and graphics capabilities to involve the player's senses and emotions more completely and invent new types of gaming experiences. There's a lot of room for growth, says Jumping Jack's Leland. As our knowledge grows, we'll be able to do even more and to amaze and surprise. We expect to be exploring the depths of the Saturn for a good two or three years. Yikes. Yep, that's actually about all anyone would really get with the Saturn, of course. And then Jumping Jack were the ones Jump, that did Congo. Jumped Jack's ship. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I want to make I, a joke, but that's just sad, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, as this goes on and on, I just can't see, like, how do they make so many mistakes and why they think these the, all other things are a good idea. I mean, it's just it's an optimistic document before all the missteps. And like Peter has said before, you know, U.S. wasn't really in control at this point. You know, the Japanese branch was pretty much controlling everything and forcing the hand, you know, in a lot of cases. Isn't that and, ironic that they that, that they're trying to run the brand when they made it successful in Japan, yet they mm-hmm. didn't do the same thing in Japan that made it successful in the U.S., which makes it even more confusing. Yeah. The long term payoff This growth won't be possible on competing systems that offer a simpler architecture. (laughs) It may be easier in some ways for developers to create programs for the competition because there's less to learn and work with from a technology standpoint. But that means that developers are much more likely to run up against the limits of the system in a short span of time. The simpler structure of competing architectures also creates the chance that games will be ported from other game systems or even personal computers, which results in games that are generic and not optimized for performance and special features. I just want to say, guys, fly, plaything, fly. <laughs> you are not ready. <laughs> that That's what it sounds like they're saying here. It's like, you know, PlayStation only has one processor. Yep, it only had one processor, but it had uh, about a thousand more games. Right, and it, it sure didn't hit the system limits any more quickly. I mean, look what we got in the later PlayStation years. They talk here, like, because it's simpler architecture, that they won't be able to keep advancing the games that they're developing, and that just wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Didn't they, like, make games up to, like, 2004 almost with the PS1? 
Because I, I remember one of the latest games I saw was a, a new Yasha on there, which was an anime series that came out in 2003, which really surprised me. Yeah, the, yeah, the PlayStation lasted a long time. I mean, and it got a lot of ports, sure, but I don't, I don't remember anybody complaining. You know, that's the thing. They say, you know, oh, these ports are not going to be optimized or whatever. People just want games. You know, that's the thing. Is if you know you're a person who plunked, you know, two or three hundred dollars into a console, you want ported. End of the day. Sad realization con- that the play- PS One was ended up being the dominated one, even though we all make jokes about hating it. It just, you just can't hate it. It's a good no. system. It's a good system. Did all the right things. In contrast, the sophistication of the Saturn pays off for both developers and consumers alike over the long term. Developers will continue to discover new ways to wield their creative talents, and game players will have an ongoing supply of new, inventive, out there, and beyond cool titles for their Sega Saturn systems. Not untrue for those lucky enough to live in the land of the rising sun. But for us sad folks in the U.S., it was slim pickings. Compared the sadness. To, yep. But I mean, I mean, later on we kind of rectified it with all the all the imports that we could possibly get. Maybe one of these See, days, it's like it'll, we'll have like one of those global, like the like Star Trek with the global uh, translators, mm-hmm. so we could possibly play every single Saturn game, mm-hmm. no matter how bad it is. That'd We've got those up in Canada already. You guys don't have them yet. <laughs> Yeah, Peter already did a playthrough of Lunar 1 and 2. He's working his way on uh, onto Grandia next. But see, this is like they're they're making a bunch of bets basically that didn't pay off. Like it sounds like they really believe that develop that third-party developers will do this, you know? Like it's almost like a perfect world. Everyone's going to be so happy, you know, they're going to they're going to love to learn the hardware and they're going to do, you know, and literally like they were just caught in a quantum shift like in the industry and they didn't even see it you know well i mean the work ethic was happening be, the work ethic in the between us and japan is so different i mean mm-hmm. they work so long hours in japan they have time to do all this stuff but in the us if there's like just a 40 hour work week and maybe mm-hmm. a crunch time here or there it be, it becomes harder and harder yeah but time is money too and, and i mean this is when the industry was changing from small dev teams to like huge like movie production dev teams you know and it's like they just couldn't pay for that kind of time they didn't have time for the overhead for their team to learn the hardware they were just like no you know we're just going to learn a simple software development kit and then you're going to just pump out you know like 10 games for us over the next you know two years or three years you'd, that was the plan you'd... Yeah, you'd really have to just give your dedication to do it or, you know, be Japanese and know how Japanese and worked with Sega and know how all the arcade hardware works in and out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another thing I think why they have the advantage. They worked with the hardware so much and made these arcade games. I mean, I don't think I know a lot of American developers that worked that made ST, STV games or Model mm-hmm. 2 games much. Mm-hmm. Moving on, and we got to get through this. Um... Sega Saturn in the interactive future. The Sega Saturn isn't just about immersing game players in a new dimension of experience. It's also a pivotal product in the massive transformation of home entertainment. Sega is well aware that the future doesn't belong to video games per se. Uh, It belongs to the emerging world of interactive entertainment. And Sega is uniquely positioned to lead the industry into the interactive future. 
Several trends are converging at once. Consumers have become incredibly sophisticated about special effects and seamless realism in their entertainment experiences. They are increasingly demanding two things, theater quality production values and participatory experiences. You know, let's throw out all those crappy 2D non-participatory games <laughs> and let's bring in some more participatory FMV games, right? What, you because... didn't like Bug? <laughs> no. It's, I mean, I mean, it's, I just think it's, that's an ironic it's... statement. They're talking about participatory experiences, but they pretty much scrapped like so, so many good 2D gameplay experiences for like, you know, being able to point and click. Well, the thing is that a lot, I mean, this wasn't a Sega thing exclusively. I mean, Sony ex- had that pulse in the US where it was 3D mostly only. I mean, mm-hmm. if it didn't have a 3D element in it, I mean, it wasn't really released. I mean, like, think of all the 2D shooters. I mean, they had some 3D elements in, in it. True. I mean, even Clone, mm-hmm. Clonoa had, you know, those 3D backgrounds and stuff and oh, those yeah. CGI effects. So. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's there's a classic Saturn title that that blends 2D gameplay with FMV sequences. It's called Mr. Bones, and there's some levels where you've got some really hot FMV that just blends fantastically with 2D gameplay. It's just a shame that did, that game didn't get more attention at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's let's be grateful it didn't. Right, <laughs> and really, the odd thing about all of this is that if they were, you know, so focused on theater quality production then why was the MPEG card not implemented in a better way? Yeah. Probably probably has to do a lot with the this, this CD. Uh, video CDs weren't popular in the U.S. But even within games, game. even within games. Uh, well, you're going to have to ask Mr. Stoller or Tom Kalinske about that. Yeah, we don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, more and more people are frustrated with personal computers as a one-size-fits-all devices and are looking for technology optimized for maximum performance, but which also integrates with other products and services. Keeping the parallel trends of sophistication and integration in mind, Sega is introducing the Sega Saturn as part of a sweeping technology agenda that will link home entertainment with the highest-end technology. And they did have Netlink, and I'll give them that. They were, you know, there were some efforts to push technology. Um, and, you know, Sega could always be blamed of being ahead of their time. But uh, among Sega's other state-of-the-art endeavors are the Sega Channel, in which its current form allows Sega Genesis customers to download and test drive the latest 16-bit games. Sega's worldwide web server on the internet which has logged more than 1 million visitors since going online in late 1994, and Sega's newly piloted interactive theme parks, which feature leading-edge arcade and virtual reality games that can be linked together for unprecedented multiplayer experiences. For instance, as many as eight players can race against each other in their individual Daytona USA pods. The common thread, of course, here is interactivity, using the latest in communications technology to expand the game player's horizons and continually redefine the dimensions of video gameplay. Because Sega plays off the synergy that comes from each of its many related entertainment businesses, it can lead the way with compelling immersive experiences that begin in its theme parks and then migrate to its arcade and home entertainment systems. 
As an optimized, sophisticated consumer system, the Saturn will naturally play an integral role in Sega's prolific interactive future. I guess, you know, what we can really take away from this document is that uh, is that there was a time when, you know, Sega was a very different company. I mean, this was, they were, they were a powerful hardware developer and they were very full of themselves and they had quite a bit of, uh, I guess you could say comeuppance, you know, from some of the things that they had done in, in just the previous years. And, um, a lot of those issues, a lot of those problems really hadn't come home to roost yet. Um, and they were seeing success in Japan and they were, you know, very excited. And so they decided to put this document out as a way to kind of pave the way, uh, in the U S but, uh, we all know the story, uh, the blunders that would follow that would kind of paint a, a very different picture than what this document, uh, tries to lay out. So, Anyway, it's been it's been a whole hell of a lot of fun reading through this document with you guys and commenting, and um, we would love to hear uh, the listeners out there. We would love to hear your input, your feedback on this. We'll be posting up a copy of this document on our page um, in the show notes as well, hosting it um, on our website. You know, so you guys have access to it. You can read along. Does anybody else want to say anything uh, before we check out? Great document for its time, and that was when they were at the height of their power, so it's just a really neat piece of history, for sure. Mm -hmm. Right, and sort of my final thoughts on this is that there are a lot of exaggerated claims in this document, for sure, but there's also a lot of things that Sega said here that aren't wrong. It's just really that they tended to overestimate how much their strengths would lend to the success of the Sega Saturn. Mm Mm-hmm. And I can only say, guys, that this all sounds so good on paper. Alright guys, we had a fantastic cast this week. So before we head out, did we have any shout outs or plugs? Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm going to start out and just say, so I've now written a couple of articles which are on our uh, Podient page. The first one being Nights into Dreams, the second one being Daytona USA. And those are both games that I'm quite familiar with. But I mentioned earlier in the cast that one of the games I'm playing through right now is Mist. Mist is not a game I've ever played before, and so I'm in the process of writing uh, an article on that, and it should prove to be fairly interesting. It'll be from, you know, a first-time 2018 player's perspective, and I'm hoping that we're going to be able to drop that pretty soon. Awesome. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that um, Mist article, um, hearing yeah. about it from um, a first-time perspective, because that's a game I actually have not played myself either, so looking forward to that, Peter. In my research so far, it's interesting. It was such a high-selling game across so many platforms, and yet a lot of people are going to tell you that they've never played it. So it should, you know, it's been an interesting experience for me, and I hope that that comes across in the article. 
Cool. All right. So um, I think that, uh, Chas, did you want to announce some of your streams? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so streams in the future. Uh, well, tomorrow, of course, Tarmar is going to be there. And following along shortly after that, there's Guardian Heroes, uh, Elevator Action Returns. Sometime down the road, uh, Symphony of the Night, or the Saturn version of Symphony of the Night, is going to happen as well. And I've still got a list of games that I want to make, actually, a master list. So there's a lot of the, for me to go through, a lot of which is going to happen. So that'll be exciting for the, for the, uh, for the streaming. Great. It sounds like we have a lot coming from you, so... Yes. Yes, a lot coming. Definitely. I'm really excited to see how it goes. All right, Kay, uh, I've seen you had some plugs, too. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I just uh, want to give a, a couple of shout-outs. Um, first off to uh, David Kayes. Uh He uh, has been instrumental in getting um, our David the uh, copy of Power Slave. I got him a really good deal on that. And uh, he's been doing a lot uh, in helping people get their hands on the Phantom uh, mod chips. So if you're looking for Phantom mod chips, uh, he's given out great prices. You can see his topics pinned at the Trade Cell Collect page. Uh, or you could find him at facebook.com forward slash pancakes for Sega. Uh, I also want to give a... Uh, shout out to the guys from the titan cast uh they had some very kind things to say about uh, the reproductions in fact so did everyone in this cast um and i just wanted to say i'm, I'm very humble and uh, grateful for the kind words you guys have said for my work thank you for that also coming up in about three weeks here in the northwest uh the Callets gamers for kids 2018 Expo will be occurring in Longview, Washington. Uh, so if you happen to be in Northwest Oregon or Southwest Washington, uh, it's going to happen Saturday, March 31st. Uh, this year, we will be featuring two tournaments. One will be uh, Towerfall uh, for the PS4, and the other will be Saturn Bomberman. And uh, yeah, so come check us out. It's for a good cause. Uh, supports the arc of uh, Southwest Washington. Um Supporting children with uh, uh, who happen to be on the autism spectrum. And uh, the last thing I, I wanted to do um, on this cast tonight was say a, a very special thank you to whoever you are out there. Um, I had a game on Layaway with one of the many uh, import providers uh, live and work in Japan. And I've had it on Layaway for a couple of months. And slowly paying it off as I had, you know, the funds to do so. And literally tonight, uh, right before we started in on the production for this cast, I got word from the owner of that uh, group um, that an anonymous benefactor just went ahead and paid off uh, my game. Uh, I am humbled. I don't know who you are. He will not tell me. Uh, but you put in a lot of money. Uh, for a rare game that I've wanted for many years. It's uh, Crow's The Battle Action. And uh, I am very grateful to whoever you are. So thank you very, very much. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Um, I'm happy to hear that, Kay. That's that's awesome. And God bless whoever whoever did that. That's great. I mean, and this this means that you can get it and rip it a lot faster too, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, the owner of that page, the guy who goes out, it's a, a really cool 
concept. Uh, people who live in Japan will go to different retro gaming shops or electronic shops and uh, you know, take photographs of items that they are selling there and will purchase on your behalf, kind of like a, a live version of like Yahoo Japan auctions or something. Um, the owner of that page is actually going to be shipping my game for free in the same spirit. I'm, I'm just so completely touched and overwhelmed that even though I um, wasn't planning on you know, being here on this cast tonight, I had to say something. So thank you to whoever you are. And thank you to Ramon Martin of uh, Raw Retro. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. And wow, I don't know what to say, Kayla. That, that was just fantastic. That's, yeah, that's and great. It's not like a, a small chunk of change either. Like I had a good couple of months worth of payments left on that thing. Wow. Well... Whoever you are, thank you very much. You did a big service to Kay and possibly the Saturn community as a whole. Because, I mean, I think Kay, I, I'm, I might be speaking for Kay, but I know that for a fact he's probably going to dump that. Would I be right in that assumption, Kay? Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be part of that collection that goes to the Redump project um, pretty much two hours after it arrives. Awesome, awesome. We really owe you a debt, Kay for that and the person that helped you get that so alright so with all the updates and plugs being said um, we thank you for listening and as always you must play Sega Saturn Sega Saturn